Hello, and welcome back to MetaStation for our podcast recapping episode 509, Six Semper Tyrannus. My name is Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. And we're going to start in Polis today for all of the amazing, angsty, terrifying Blood Raina storyline. But I think first, before we dive in, just like in case there are people listening who uh, who don't know, I know a lot of this has been kind of floating around on social media. So Six Emperor Tyrannus is Latin for thus always to tyrants. It's initially, I believe, something wrong, Aaron, um, ascribed to, but potentially anecdotally rather than historically, to Caesar. It's best known in the United States, for those of you who are not American, it's best known kind of in American history as this is what John Wilkes Booth shouted as he shot Abraham Lincoln. Something we, we talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, sort of wondering when they announced the titles, would it kind of come in? into the story in more of a Caesar way or would it come into the story in more of a Abraham Lincoln, you know, some kind of like tied to Lincoln, tied to American history kind of way. And it really felt like it sort of felt applicable, I think, in both of those senses. I thought it was yeah. potentially, <laughs> I think, that the aptest title of anything in this season that we've seen so far. <laughs> I, I think so. Um, I was, I think it's a line, it was said to... Julius Caesar mm-hmm. as he was being assassinated. Yes. Yeah, when the when he was stabbed by the senators. Yeah. Correct. Yes, I think that's what they said yeah. as they were stabbing him. Yeah. And Booth shouted it as he jumped onto the stage in the Ford Theater after he had shot Lincoln. Oh, right. It's like okay. he he yeah. jumped from the the box that Lincoln was in and landed on the stage and screamed Six Emperor Tyrannus and then ran away. Yes. Yes. So I think it, it is very, is very apt. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, certainly for Bellamy and Indra mm-hmm. and maybe even Clark and also maybe, you know, like McCreary mm-hmm. to some extent, maybe, or like Dioza and McCreary, you know? Yeah. Like I think if you take on faith the idea that who is and is not a tyrant is often a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. Then I think it really you can identify pretty easily which are who the who the tyrant or the perceived tyrant is in each of these groups and you know and who has that kind of perspective. I mean I I think it seems in Shallow Valley which we'll come back to at the end of the podcast to kind of talk about that story. I certainly think that McCreary has the raw material to be a much more tyrannical tyrant than than Dioza, <laughs> but it is interesting coming right on the heels of Kane having kind of confronted her with that in the last episode, you know, or a couple episodes ago, sort of saying to her, like, from my point of view, the two of you look the same. And then she starts to kind of make some different choices. Mm -hmm. But from McCreary's point of view, certainly, I think he and his people feel like they're being kind of held in lockstep. But then, and then, of course, you know, like the heart of it, obviously, is, you know, is about Indra and Bellamy's choice to sort of circumvent... Octavia, which I think is an interesting parallel in terms of the the sort of Caesar interpretation of that line where, you know, where you have a a group, a collective taking mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. the tyrant for what they perceive to be the nobler political good. Yes, exactly. And also, I mean, like, given that it's the Blakes, I think mm-hmm. that the the Roman history, yeah. yes, very you much know, so. as yeah. side of it, it makes sense that it would, that would be prominent. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. That's always to Blood Reina's. always to Blood Reina's. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that – so, so we're going to start – We'll start in Polis, and we, because this episode really was sort of, the two halves of the story were really so, all the characters were so tightly wound together in both halves of it. We're going to more kind of step through it kind of piece by piece, as opposed to breaking it apart in, you know, different characters and stuff. So we'll sort of begin where the episode begins, which is the delightful to my heart, even though it ended very heartbreakingly, kind of partnership of Indra and Bellamy, which like the two of them operating as a unit was, I thought, one of the highlights of the episode. Oh, I agree. I mean, this is, you know, it's one of those like team ups you never knew you needed so badly Mm -hmm. until you Mm -hmm. get it kind of thing. But Yeah. yeah, no. And, and that opening scene also of, I mean, like, (laughs) <laughs> you know, there's that, that Bellamy and Clark scene that was released as a sneak peek before the episode of them bringing Maddie in to say hello to Clark and Bellamy being like, you know, this is a goodbye. Like, we have this perfect plan. Indra's now in charge of everybody. She's going to take Dio's deal. I'm going to come get you out. It's all going to be great. We're going to do it together. And then Clark says, together, you know, like, yay, together. And this, anytime that's the first scene of an episode, anytime a first scene in a, of, you know, with like a, of, of a storyline in an episode, is that like yay happy mm-hmm. you know it's all gonna go to shit like, <laughs> yeah. and, like as soon as he said that i was like well mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep. it's all gonna fall apart and boy howdy does it ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um I feel like this is a good time to talk about miller because like one thing that i did not see coming this season and I still don't completely like I'm curious to know how you feel about this is the development of Miller as a like hardcore true believer Mm -hmm. one crew Blood Reina loyalist and to see him like to that like we saw that a little bit last week when he got promoted you know by uh, Octavia to take over Indra's place of the first battalion like we saw some hints but to see him in that first scene you know after Indra's walked in and said like you know given her speech like Blood Raina wanted me to lead and I'm going to lead you to Shallow Valley we're going to nobody you know nobody else needs to die here like we don't have to fight this war it's possible for everyone to live and just go live in this place to have Miller step in and you know pull the rug out from under Indra after she called him Nathan, I like know. I was just like, and two Miller, like <laughs> it was such a come down after like because like the last episode where where there's that moment of tension over who commands the first battalion, like to me it felt like the way their faces were sort of framed in that scene. I felt Miller's discomfort on Indra's behalf at watching Indra get demoted and him feeling like both like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And also I'm uncomfortable being handed this thing that doesn't belong to me, that belongs to you, this like senior person. And so the flip to this in this episode, I was like, I'm so mad at you. A. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and I'm and I'm mad at the show for dangling a Miller Indra kind of like 
bromance and then like yanking it away from me. But mostly I, like you, I am, I'm flummoxed. And and what I will say, so I'm not confused by it in a way where I don't feel like it reads or like it's bad story. Like I feel like, like it works very effectively. I just am like, I'm desperately hoping we get some degree of backstory of how it happened. And so speaking of Miller, so something that I was thinking about a little bit that I've been kind of like pinging little bits of as we kind of go along every time we get hints of like dark year mythology like anytime somebody brings mm-hmm. up the dark year what like teeny teeny tiny little crumbs of actual data do we get and what we know from you know from every time it's come up whatever the thing is that happened is a thing that Octavia's perception is that it's a thing that she did by herself whatever was the hard thing that she feels like it was something that she kind of bore alone and Indra what we learned in this episode kind of it feels like she sort of blames herself. She confirmed for, that. Yeah, she confirmed that. And, yeah. and that yeah. that she maybe had opportunities to step in and didn't, or that she kind of stood back. Like Octavia was kind of like, you sort of stood back and let me do whatever the horrible thing was. Kane's perception of it was that he participated and enabled. And that could be passive, like whatever, like Indra. Like it could be standing back and not mm-hmm. stopping her. Or it could have been something more like active complicity. Yeah. But the sense that I'm beginning to gather about Miller is that whatever the thing was, Miller was actively involved in it. And that choice whatever whatever things miller did not not things that he kind of stood back and let happen but actively did himself and nyla also kind of mm-hmm. sealed that really dark bond between them and octavia where now the problem is you know if Miller or Nyla ever hit a place of realizing that, like, Bloodraina was wrong, this way of life was wrong, that means the things that they did was, were wrong, and that means that they kind of hit the same moral and ethical wall that Cain and Abby and Indra had hit already of having to sort of realize, like, what have we done? What have we turned into? Mm-hmm. Nyla and Miller aren't there yet. Nyla and Miller are still, mm-hmm. like... Nyla maybe, like, beginning to, like, I think a little bit in this in this episode, potentially, like at least seeing Clark not as the enemy, but very much like everything is still for Bloodraina, you know? She still thinks that Bloodraina is the sun, you know? Like, yes, yes, exactly. That seems yeah. to be her and Miller say both have that kind of, that almost worship for her. And so I think you're right that it has something to do with like, whatever happens in the dark year, whatever Octavia did, that's the thing that for the people who are absolute fanatic, you know, mm-hmm. fanatically loyal to Octavia, that's the thing that sealed them to her. However, mm-hmm. however that happened, you know? And whatever it was kind of is is such a thing that they are willing to keep doubling down and doubling down mm-hmm. on that. But like, God, I really hope we get that backstory. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm just like, what happened to you, Miller? I know. Like, oh, my God. Well, who hurt you? And, it, and it's so <laughs> painful watching Bellamy see what Miller has become. Like, yeah, breaks yeah. your heart. Because, yeah. you know, it. it is... And and I think and that's that's partly why I I hope so much that we get even if it's a little bit and it's kind of more implicit than explicit or textual some kind of indication of how you know how Miller and Octavia ended up building the relationship that they have because like psychologically it's fascinating to me that you know like given how their relationship began when Mil- when Miller was Octavia's 
or when was Miller was Bellamy's person and was like the one who was, you know, torturing Lincoln, the very much sort of in opposition to Octavia. You know, he was kind of in this cohort of Bellamy's people who were kind of helping keep Octavia, you know, in line, basically keep her like locked up. So it's just, it's a fascinating relationship where they've evolved to and what I like about it is that part of what I think that loyalty that Miller has to Octavia, you know, as, as chilling as it is in effect, I think that the reminder that they're the only two delinquents that were underground, you know, like I think they, mm. they're, you know, like it's it's this sort of tie between the two of them where I think it's easy for me to believe that over the course of those really difficult years that Miller might become somebody who she feels like is one of the few people that she actually has history with and a connection with. You know, I mean, she's literally known him the longest. Yeah. Of anybody anybody in there. Yeah. Because it's not like she didn't, she didn't know any of the other people on the Ark Mm -hmm. when she was on the Ark. Yeah. So, so Miller would be the person that she has known the longest. Mm -hmm. And, and when you think about it with Miller, thinking back to season one, you know, how he sort of followed Bellamy and was very loyal to Bellamy and would do anything that Bellamy told him to, you know, anything that Bellamy thought was, the right thing to do, Miller would do it, like, ter- you know, torturing Lincoln mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And here, and I think even in season three, you know, like, he decided Kane was the person that he believed mm-hmm. in, that he wanted to follow. And he would do anything that Kane thought was necessary, even to the point where he was at odds with his, you know, with Brian, mm-hmm. with the person that, with his boyfriend, like, the person he loved at that point. There is a kind of consistency in Miller's character that, like, he's a person who is, like, who who wants and needs a leader. Yeah. You know, who wants somebody who, like, he'll look around and he's not like, he won't follow, like, he'll look around and sort of like, who's the person I think I most believe in or I think is most right mm-hmm. or whatever, who is best, our best leader in the situation. And once he kind of like pledges his loyalty to that person, he's like, ride or die with the emphasis on die. Like, he will do anything. Mm-hmm. And will kind of in- implicitly accept, like, if this is the person that I've chosen to follow, like, what that person says goes. So there is a kind of, like, you know, you can kind of, you can sort of trace a, like, all right, this is, like, this is what Miller does in these extreme situations. Mm-hmm. And, like, this time it's Bloodrena. I just, it's, like, so dismaying, you oh, know, God, like, to yeah. watch him, you know, like, just totally turn on Bellamy and Clark and especially after that like nice that like lovely hug that he and Bellamy had yeah when he came out of the bunker like hey buddy and now it's just like oh yeah and like they you know they told us in the um in this episode that it's been a week since the sandworms Mm -hmm. so it's been like that's a crazy thing too I was like oh my god it's been a week since episode 505 like Jesus Christ, it feels like a thousand years, yeah. which is probably because of all the, the like hiatuses that we've, you know, it has actually been like, you know, yeah. a month and a half or something like that, maybe more. But like, you know, it, it's it's just sort of like to be reminded of how short a time, like they opened the bunker like maybe 10 days ago mm-hmm. in story. It's like how quickly that all has just yeah transpired and turned around. Well. And I think it's, you know, getting back to what you're saying about the sort of the <laughs> how kind of, you know, how painful the contrast is between this Miller and that kind of, you know, initial sort of moment where we where we see him and Bellamy, you know, reconnecting. I think it, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of position that next to we got, you know, in those episodes when they opened the bunker, we got so many really lovely little moments of reunion where sort of just like the kind of, you know, the initial like shock and astonishment of all these people being sort of unexpectedly 
thrown back into each other's lives again after everyone mm-hmm. was sort of beginning to give up hope of that reconciliation. And what I like about the kind of emotional complexity of so many of these relationships that we've lived with for so long is that genuinely being pleased to see each other can live side by side in a completely like psychologically logical way with the realization that like once the dust settles, Miller's still Bunker Miller. Miller's still, you know, you're mm-hmm. one crew, you're the enemy of one crew, and Blairena's in charge. And the kind of rude awakening he must have experienced when he realizes that like Bellamy isn't here to like defer to Octavia and kind of like assimilate into the fold. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was really interesting to me because it's like, it doesn't mean that that moment of tenderness was insincere any more than it means that, you know, Octavia throwing her arms around Bellamy when she sees him again was was insincere or not genuine, but it lives side by side with her throwing her own brother in the pit to be executed. Like, it's all, mm-hmm. you know, it's all so consistent. And so in a way, it's kind of like the Miller Bellamy stuff is like a little microcosm of the Octavia Bellamy stuff, you know? Like, there's yeah. all those pieces or, to and it the, fit. And the Clark and Bellamy stuff, which yeah. I think that, that might yeah, be yeah, a good... Yeah. It might be a good segue to the Clark Bellamy thing because I think that's another like I think the the Bellamy Miller thing is a good you know I think you're right that's like a good microcosm but I think that also is kind of like it's just like I I think I'm really really I was so impressed and even more on rewatch and thinking about it more with how unbelievable like this is a great episode of this oh my show. god yeah and Love like you. how un how deftly and well executed like how definitely written it was how well executed it was and how carefully all of the moments that paid off in this episode have been set up to this point yes yes so like and and bellamy and miller is a microcosm of that but like uh of the sort of like you know we got the moment of like yay you're alive and then very and then like that sort of everyone was sort of coasting on that for a little bit mm-hmm. as they slowly sort of came to grips with the re- the you know 6 years later realities and this is the episode where all of those realities sort of you know hit the fan mm-hmm. and i thought that like the most amazingly well done version of that to me was Bellamy and Clark. Yeah. Because like, I think and that scene, like the, their fight, that, that scene where, you know, Bellamy came to tell Clark, like, Hey, guess what? Our perfect plan didn't work. Shock and awe and <laughs> whoever would have thought it. So instead we're going to, you know, put the chip, we're going to put the flame in Maddie and make her commander so that then everybody will just listen to her and she'll say no war and you'll be free and everything will be hunky dory. Like, I, I kept thinking back to, you know, 503, to that moment at the end of 503 when they saw each other and it was like this miraculous, like, oh my God, you're alive, like, thank God. Mm-hmm. And then in, you know, 504 when they, they, you know, they're like hugging and then there's sort of that, like, the, the, the downward trajectory that we've been on from like, I can't believe that you're alive and here in front of me, mm-hmm. you know, like, thank God I'm so happy through kind of learning them confronting and learning like, wait a second, you aren't the person you were six, six years ago. Mm-hmm. You're certainly not the person that I, that you turned into inside of my head over six years. Mm-hmm. And also the kind of like the, the really the, the tension between their priorities, which I think has been on a slow burn for several weeks. Yeah, like yeah. the last couple of weeks since they've been in that bunker, you know, trying to scheme their way out of having this war and having, you know, everybody in, in Shallow Valley get killed. You know, they've kind of kept bumping up against like, 
Bellamy's like, okay, we're going to do this. And Clark has to say, wait a second, but what about Maddie? You know, like your plan won't work because of Maddie. And then they, they sort of have been, they've like been bumping up against that moment and then kind of like slipping by it. Like, you know, okay. So like, you know, there's the episode, the end of the, I can't remember which number it was, but, um, the episode where Echo left, where, you know, Clark was like, where Bellamy is all like, okay, Echo's going to go do this thing. So it's all good now. And Clark was like, I'm leaving with Maddie Mm -hmm. because she's not safe here. And, and Bellamy's totally shocked. And then they start to have that argument and then they're interrupted by Octavia shooting yeah. at the defectors. So they never actually have that confrontation. And then over the next couple of weeks, it keeps happening. Like they, you know, they, they each have slightly different plans. You know, Bellamy's plan covers space crew, but Maddie is a kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll take care of that. You know, mm-hmm. and Clark kind of going the other way. And they keep sort of figuring out ways to like compromise and sort of paper over the differences. But like that was that was never sustainable, right? Like at some mm. point, this sort of fundamental thing where they are no longer, although they still care deeply about each other and they still sort of see each other as partners and want to slip back into that partnership and they're trying to do it. But like the fact that ultimately at the end of the day, they no longer have the same number one priority mm-hmm. was always going to blow up. Like they were always going to get to the point where they had yeah. to confront like, th- we can't just slip back into this thing as if nothing has changed in six years. And Clark mm-hmm. kept, was kind of the one who kept saying like, she was sort of pushing back and she kept telling Bellamy like, you know, you've changed, you've changed, you've changed. And in a very like, admir- you know, admiring sort of way. Um, and so to sort of finally reach this point where so, like, I think, I think this point was inevitable. I think it has been very, like, the sort of steps to the confrontation have been building and building and building mm-hmm. for weeks, you know? Yeah. And so to kind of, like, arrive at this one scene, which was so, I thought, like, so well done, both in terms of writing and in terms of performance, where, and also just in terms of, like, you know, like, one thing that this show does that I think, one thing that the show always wants to do, like, I think what Jason and the writers always want to be doing is to be setting up situations where you have two sides and each side has a completely valid point of view on a problem. Mm-hmm. Both sides have about equal pros and cons and which which thing you think is best depends on your perspective, right? Like yeah. that's kind of always yeah. what they're going for. And they've over the years they've they've executed that with wildly varying levels of success, right? right? Like <laughs> anywhere from very well to like Bellamy in season 3. Um mm. <laughs> in 3A, where we didn't get enough of it, like Bellamy and Pike where we we were denied enough of their perspective to understand their point of view and so it mm-hmm. felt like even though they didn't intend for those characters to be like thrown under the bus, like it just wasn't possible for most of the audience you know, to like understand them well enough to like, to say like, yes, they have a valid, as valid a point of view as, you know, anybody else. And I think in my opinion, this is one of the absolute best done versions of that they have ever, ever on the show. Like to me, I see both sides like so equally, Mm -hmm. both in terms of like, in terms of the, the validity of their sort of arguments about their various plans and also the validity of their sort of emotions about it and their each of their feelings of sort of anger and betrayal obviously more betrayal on Clark's part so like from Bellamy's I totally understand Bellamy's perspective like from Bellamy's perspective he's like okay look here's the deal we have people we love in Shallow Valley if if this war goes forward worms or no like but those people are probably going to die they're going to be in direct 
danger mm-hmm. if, you know, if the plan that Octavia had had goes forward, they die. And if Octavia or her loyalists stay in power in the bunker, then Clark 100% also dies. Yes. Because she is going to be executed as a traitor. So he's like, I need a plan. I need to figure out a way to get someone in charge who will stop the war so the people in Shallow Valley don't die. And also who will, you know, not execute Clark mm-hmm. for treason. And I think for Bellamy, like, you know, when when Indra suggests, when Indra is like, all right, so, you know, we have a real night blood and we have the flame and we have a flame keeper and we have a, you know enough people in this bunker who still believe in the commanders so if we make maddie the commander maddie will not go to war and maddie will absolutely not execute clark mm-hmm. so like in bellamy's mind he's like this is like not only this is like our only solution and also the best solution like i think yeah. from from bellamy's point of view i think he doesn't really see the downsides and part of that is like the problem with bellamy's point of view is that he is deliberately sort of consciously, but in a way where he's trying not to think about it too much, skating over the huge flaws in the plan. So right. like, for instance, the Wayne one being like, you know, Clark is like the big hand wave in Bellamy's plan is Octavia, as always. Right. It's not a Bellamy plan unless there's like step one, step two, step three, question mark, step four, success. Like Bellamy only ever has two thirds of a plan. <laughs> I love him to death, but Bellamy is terrible at plans. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a big like flip, 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 and then we're done. <laughs> so, so the big hand wave for Bellamy is he's like, well, if we if we make Maddie the commander and she says no more war, and then we make it to Shallow Valley and everything is peaceful, then when Octavia wakes up, she'll just look around and be like, oh, this is really neat, and it'll be fine. Yeah. And like the way that he says that to Clark, he absolutely, he one hundred percent knows, you know, that like that is not how it would go, right? You know, so it's like. He knows. He like he's like, yeah, it, it it'll be it'll be fine. But like it's like I think it's a combination of A, he doesn't he he really is afraid. Like he really thinks she's not gonna wake up. Like his mm-hmm. he kind of can't get past thinking that he's already murdered his sister. Right. You know, so part of it is just kind of like he can't really think too hard about <laughs> about Octavia because mm-hmm. that's going on. And the other part of it is I think is a as a really bad case of like that's a problem for future Bellamy. Right, you know, he's exactly. like, look, we just like get the thing in Maddie and we get everyone to Shallow Valley and then we're all happy in Shallow Valley and then like we'll deal we will deal with Octavia then. Right. Like Never like, mind that the yeah, idea yeah, yeah, yeah. of Octavia being in Shallow Valley, where she's actively able to destroy Shallow Valley herself, is not, like, putting her in the place that you're trying to preserve is not the safest or smartest strategy. Also, I'm pretty sure that, like, the terms of the surrender are, if, like, Bellamy, like, waltzed into Shallow Valley and was like, so, which cabin is my sister? Because we're all just going to live in peace. Dioza would be like, uh, No. You are turning over Blood Raina. She is my prisoner. Right. There's no way. That is a huge, huge, huge hole in Bellamy's plan. Like, that is the number one hole. And he is just deliberately not – he's hand-waving it because the rest of the plan solves every one of his problems so perfectly. Like – Space crew lives, Echo, Murphy, Amori, Raven live, and Clark lives, and they go to Shallow Valley, and there's no war, and the rest of it will just sort of, will solve that problem when she wakes up from Hakoma. Right. So, so I like, I completely get from his perspective why he's like, I gotta do this. I think it's also important, it seems to me like an important piece of the puzzle for, with Bellamy too, is that I don't think Bellamy, 
knows as much about, you know, the commander cult and how it works and what it means as we do as an audience or that Clark, as Clark does, right. right? Like what Bellamy knows about the flame is like grounders follow the commander. The commander is the person with the flame in their head. And that's kind of it. You know, like he doesn't really know any of the other. He wasn't in Polis in season three for like the political intrigue. You know, like he doesn't know all the sort of backstory stuff about it. And then his his only experience with somebody getting the flame was when Clark got it in season three. And Clark was fine. It went in, it came out, Clark is fine. So like Tim, I think in his eyes, he's sort of like giving Maddie the flame itself is not, like, I don't think he understands how big a deal it is. Like, he doesn't really, he's just sort of right. like, you put it in, it's there, like, this is not going to endanger, it's not going to, like, endanger Maddie's life to have it in her head. Right. I think he thinks, like, and I will, we will, me and Indra, we will protect Maddie, nothing's going to happen to her, you know, like, we can handle that part of it. So as far as he's concerned, he's sort of like, this, this solves all of my problems, and everything else is something I can deal with. But he is, like, absolutely ignoring huge problems. And then on the other side, Clark, like I completely understand Clark because like, first of all, she has a much more complete understanding of what the flame is, what it does, the implications of putting it inside your body and the implications of making Maddie a commander. Like she understands the sort of commander cult and the grounder culture surrounding it much more deeply than Bellamy. And she even understands it much more deeply, I think, than she did before the time jump. Because, like, I think she sort of absorbed, like, Maddie is a Nightblood who survived because she was hiding from this. Like, the whole reason she has Maddie was to keep her from having to take on this terrible, terrible burden Mm. of – being the leader of people and a military commander and having to make these life or death, you know, war, no war sort of decisions as a 12-year-old child, yeah. you know, like she – so she's not – not only is she thinking about it as Maddie's like basically parent, so not only is she thinking about it like this is my child and doing this will put her in danger and, it, and you know, it, it will put a, a huge burden on her shoulders, but she also is looking at it from a perspective of like – Having a really thorough, I think, understanding of what putting that burden on Maddie's shoulders means. I think for Bellamy, like, mm-hmm. he's just sort of like, she becomes the figurehead that makes everybody stop fighting, right, you know? Right. And he doesn't really think about it beyond that, um, which is a problem. Like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like excusing that. I'm just saying, like, this is how he's thinking about it. And that is the flaw in his thinking, like, sort of right, fundamentally. Exactly. Clark is thinking, like, this is my little girl and she's a little girl. And you're going to put a thing inside of her that A, puts her in this like tremendously huge, stressful, difficult position that puts her in danger in a number of ways. You know, she becomes a sort of military leader of this group Mm -hmm. that like whatever memories are still on that flame, which, you know, like I've seen a lot of stuff, like a lot of people in fandom are talking about like they sort of, I think, unintentional implications of of the possibility of the memories of Clark and Lexa having sex being in there. And like, now she's got that in her head. And I sort of like, I'm just going to head cannon that it's set that like Becca programmed in safe search <laughs> to the flame. And like, you know, and, and Becca was American, right? She was American company. So like in America, like 
all sex, no sex for PG-13, right. but violence yeah. is fine for PG-13. <laughs> so, like, nobody's sex memories are on the flame, but you do remember the battles. So, you, you know, just for my own peace of mind, this is how I prefer to uh, think how it works. So, but, like, she also, like, there's all these memories in the flame, you know, she has memories of, like, battles and of whatever. And then on top of that, the other thing that Bellamy, Clark, or that Clark knows that Bellamy doesn't, Clark knows through her confrontation with Nyla, that there are people, there are sort of fin- people who are fanatically loyal to Octavia to the point that where they will want to eliminate Maddie mm. in order to prevent her from taking Blood Rain as power. Right. So Clark, and, and Bellamy doesn't know that because Clark never told him, you know, like, she, they got interrupted before she could tell him when she told him she was leaving. We don't actually know for a fact that he knows any of that. So Clark also knows that giving Maddie the flame puts her in an extremely precarious position in that bunker politically, that right. she will immediately be a target for assassination. And Bellamy, that's the part, that's the other part that he's hand waving away. He's like, Indra and I will protect her, you know, like, but as far as Bellamy is concerned, he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, but we'll just protect her. Like, I'll just, I am Bellamy, but like, I will just make sure that she doesn't die, which is like, you're sweet, Bellamy, but like, this is not how things work. <laughs> I know you mean it, but that doesn't mean you can do it. Right. Um, so, but Clark, you know, of course, like, understandably, like, Clark, these are all the things that she's thinking when she says, like, absolutely not. You cannot do this. You know, like, I cannot put Maddie in that kind of danger. This is like, this is something that Clark cannot abide. And so, and that is also like, 100% completely valid. But on the other hand, the part that Clark is sort of ignoring and hand-waving away is like basically basically she's like, I will not risk any harm to Maddie of any kind whatsoever, even if it costs the lives of everyone in Shallow Valley. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that she just sort of expects. And she's like, I don't think she wants that. Like, that's the part she wants to hand-wave. She just wants to be like, no, we're not putting the flame in Maddie. We'll just do something else. We'll find a different, well, you know, like whatever. We'll find a different solution to this gigantic problem that's developing in the bunker. So like that's Clark's humongous sort of like blind spot that Mm -hmm. she's sort of willing to kind of gloss over. The Where the conflict comes from is that the thing that Bellamy is willing to gloss over is the thing that Clark absolutely will not. And the thing that Clark is willing to gloss over is the thing that Bellamy absolutely will not. Because her number one priority is Maddie, and Bellamy's priority is space crew. I, I don't even know if it's accurate to say that Bellamy's number one priority is space crew, but, like, they are on par with Clark and Maddie. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he he will not tolerate a solution where they remain at risk, right? And so they finally find themselves at this impasse mm-hmm. where the thing that is, like, most important to each of them is the thing that they can't compromise on. And the, like, horrible betrayal and tragedy of it is that in this instance, Clark is the one who is chained up and has no power to stop events from unfolding. And Bellamy is the one who can walk away. Mm -hmm. And I almost... Like, I almost cried every time I watched that scene because just, just the sheer pain of the betrayal of like, and like, kudos, all the kudos to Eliza and Bob because they do an amazing job. This is an incredibly painful, wrenching experience. Like, just the level of 
horror for Clark, who, like, you know, we talked, she, we know she talked to Bellamy every day for six years. She wanted him to come home. In the script, they were, they released a script to screen of that scene. And, you know, it, like, it, it says in the stage directions, you know, that refers to Cl- Bellamy as Clark's best friend. So, like, this person that she was sort of, like, wanted to return that she always thinks of as being her ally mm-hmm. that she thought would always be on her side is making her worst nightmare come true. Um, you know, and for Bellamy, like, he has to accept that this – that Clark, who's this inc- – you know, this person who's incredibly important to him that he's been – he'd been mourning for six years who – you know, he's become the person he is because he sort of in honor of her, you know, like everything he did in space – was in kind of in, in honor of her memory, and he has to accept that that she's going to hate him for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. But it's so well done because I one hundred percent see both sides equally, and mm-hmm. I don't think, and I don't know, I don't think that either of them is right. You know, like I, I could not possibly, I can't pick a side. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, that is all fucked up, and. I see both perspectives equally and there is there was no way for this to end without that kind of confrontation, you know, in that situation. And like, I'm just going to roll around in all the <laughs> delicious angst. <laughs> well, you know, and I, and I think I so I totally agree with you. I have I had so many thoughts and feelings about both about that scene as a scene. And also, like you said, about, you know, this is a, a culmination of what we've been building to and and one of the things that i think i think for me watching it the thing that was at the heart of why like like cuz like you said before like they've set up many times in the past sort of scenarios where you have this kind of like nobody's right nobody's wrong they want you to sort of see both sides of an argument and so it, for me kind of trying to parse like why does this one work so perfectly where others yeah. with good intentions have swung and missed and for me what it is, something that we've been talking about all season long that makes season five feel really kind of qualitatively different on some large and small levels from past seasons is how every single thing that happens from the macro to the micro is rooted in relationship. So for Bellamy, yes, like from Bellamy's point of view, he has already made the biggest sacrifice he's ever made in his life. He mm-hmm. keeps saying, and I think it's really noteworthy, he keeps saying, like, if she survives, if she's alive, if she If makes, she wakes like, up. Like, yeah. yeah, in his head, he already killed his in sister. In his head, he's killed his sister. He's crossed the one uncrossable line. And so you, so putting yourself in his mindset, you get why he might perceive it to be unfair that Clark gets to protect her her, her family person when he had to give up his when they're both it's like look like we're both like we're trying to stop a war i poisoned my sister to do it maddie's not gonna die maddie's not gonna come to physical harm this is you know like you have this thing in your head so like mm-hmm. so i think his frustration at her unwillingness to meet him in the middle because he's like i already i did my thing i did the part that caused me Pain and guilt I'll never get over to stop this Mm -hmm. war. Your turn, Clark. You know, so I, Mm -hmm. so from his point of view, like I feel all, and it's, it's because it's all about 
family. It's like, I sacrificed my mm-hmm. family to stop this war. Now it's your turn, and you're lucky because yours is not even going to die. She's going to be fine. She just has to do one thing. Because like you said, because he doesn't understand mm-hmm. what it means. And for Clark, from their point of view, she didn't tell him to poison Octavia. Like, she... Because when he comes in, yeah, like, what, did, right. what did you do? Like, they didn't they didn't hatch that plan together. He right. decided, and he did it, and then tells her about it afterwards. And she kind of knows. I mean, she's like, like, she has that kind of, oh, shit moment. But she knew, yeah, she knew something like that was going to be necessary. <laughs> but, but then he comes to her and he's like, okay, so, like, now, you know, your turn. And what she knows is six years of unpacking Maddie's trauma. You know, mm-hmm. like, living day to day with... Maddie had having nightmares, you know, the the place under the ground where Maddie used to hide from the Nightblood Scouts, like every facet of her life that was built around like, this is the one thing like this is this is like the boogeyman. This is Maddie's like primal childhood fear. And Mm -hmm. that's all stuff that Bellamy doesn't know. And and so for Clark, I think, you know, Bellamy's frustration that Clark won't meet him in the middle and that she's trying to wriggle out of having to make a choice as hard as the one that he just made. And then from her point of view, what that moment does that I think, and it pops up a couple times in, in other scenes with Indra, the callbacks to um, how young Lexa was when Lexa ascended had a really interesting kind of emotional impact, I think, when laid side by side with Maddie, because like we meet Lexa and Luna as adult women, like badass warrior yeah. adult women. And we never saw them when they were 12 fighting each other in the conclave, like Luna having to kill mm-hmm. her brother. We didn't witness that. We saw Aiden, we saw Antari killing the other kids, but we weren't given a ton of time to get to know, you know, even Aiden, who who was sort of the one that was kind of the most, like a distinguished character from the other kids, you know, we didn't live with him as long as we have with Maddie so far, who is like, mm-hmm. you know, we're so deeply emotionally invested in her and she's so very much 12 years old. And so when, mm-hmm. you know, when Octavia says like, this kid's a fucking kid, how is she going to do this? And Indra basically being like, that's how it works here. That's what we do. The thing that's really mm-hmm chilling about that is that it also has the sort of ping back to, you know, the things that Clark must have thought about in the past, about like Lexa and Luna's childhood trauma, you know, like how they became who they mm-hmm. became because they were they were irreparably damaged in this way as like as children by this like they had their childhood like stolen from them essentially, you know, and mm-hmm. and seeing, yeah. so seeing seeing the way that it feels for Clark as a parent to conceptualize the idea of Maddie growing up to become that, uh, to me, I think it, I think it sort of fills in the blanks of a lot of things that she learned without being told or learned kind of reading between the lines of who Lexa and Luna became, you know, the pain they mm-hmm. were carrying, the childhood trauma that they were carrying, things that she knows and understands about what it does to people to be pulled into this world and this you know set of beliefs when you're a kid especially when you're not given the ability to choose it freely you know and and neither Mm -hmm. lexa and luna as children nor maddie now 
are actually being given the ability to choose anything freely. Like it's not mm-hmm. informed consent if all of these sort of pressures around you are coalescing to sort of drive you to whether whether it's like being raised in this faith, like the grounders were, where you're just sort of like, you are a nightblood. This is what nightbloods do. This is who we are. These are things that like, that you don't question. The entire religious yeah. infrastructure of your life supports them as being true. The fact that Luna, to get out of it, had to run away and hide mm-hmm. for the rest of her life. And Maddie had to hide mm-hmm. to stay out of it. I mean, that tells us like, if you were a nightblood child and you were brought there, you didn't have a choice about whether you mm-hmm. trained or whether you fought in the conclave. And so, and you did, which means you didn't really have a choice about whether you became a commander. At that point, it wasn't a choice. It was just like, did you survive or not? Exactly. Yeah. And maybe you were raised to believe, to believe in the honor of that. And maybe you were raised to to think on some level being commander would be cool the way kids think that things that are abstract are cool. But like it was, leadership was like a heavy weight that Lexa wore. You know, it wasn't something that mm-hmm. she sort of undertook freely and joyfully. It was like, this is a burden that you carry, you know, and that was sort of the connective mm-hmm. thread between her and Clark is feeling like we are stuck being the people in this situation who make these decisions for our people. And it isn't pleasant mm-hmm. and it's brutal, but it's what we do because we're the ones who do it. And and so I feel like Clark looking at Maddie and thinking like, I don't want that for my child, I think gives mm-hmm. us a lot of information about how Lex's parents felt and how Luna's parents felt and, and like the sort of yeah. dark, sinister underbelly of the system that we're introduced to in earlier seasons kind of from from the mythic outside. You know, like we're we're told yeah. about the commander and the commander's theology and the sort of social structure of the clans before we meet them. It's presented as this kind of – it's all kind of like myth and legend. And we really – I think – in a way, like we, uh, what we got in in season three was the mythology and the ideology right. of the commander, and we didn't get the kind of more, you know, it was not presented in a way where we could f- sort of clearly see the more brutal realities, right, of it, right. And through Luna, and now through Maddie, you know, mm-hmm. we're sort of getting to see that less sort of rose colored, misty eyed version of things right well and like with like costia too like clark knows exactly yeah, yeah, what yeah. happens like if you're like if you're in this position like if you make yourself the target immediately what happens is that not just you but everyone that you love everything that matters to you are ripe for exploitation and destruction by your enemies well, there's a reason why the Flame Keepers taught the commanders love is weakness, uh-huh. and apparently yeah. Gaia has taught that too. That's like the one teaching that trans- transferred over from commanders to Bloodraina mm-hmm. was like, make sure you don't love anybody. Right. Because only bad things happen when you love a particular person. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if you're the, the parent of a child, like, you'd, I, if, you, if I were Clark, I would not want Maddie to live that life. Exactly. You yeah. know, like that would oh, be yeah. horrifying. Yeah. And especially to begin living that life as a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, to ask a child to like sort of detach herself in that way. Yeah. Like if I were Clark, I'd be fucking screaming and breaking my wrists exactly. trying to get free to stop that from happening. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think it is like, I think it's a, what it does that I think is really, in terms of sort of, you know, culminating and and fully realizing storylines that have been building for a long time is like, we're seeing through 
Clark's perspective, how all of the sort of people that like, you know, everyday, like blue collar, everyman grounder people, you know, who the sort of Mm -hmm. myth and history have erased and silenced, how they felt about their children being pulled into a world where their only choice to survive because of this thing that they couldn't control because of how they were born, their only choice to survive is like either you die brutally and gruesomely or you take on this staggering, unbelievable, traumatizing burden that no child should have to carry. And mm-hmm. and e- but either way, you cease to belong to us. Like either way, you're somebody else's now. Now you're like Titus's kid, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I feel like that sort of continual fleshing out of the pieces of the grounder world that you know, and of the commander cult that like how they affected the people whose stories don't get told in the sort of like the legend of one had a, you know, I think is really, is really powerful because Maddie is like our, Maddie is our entry point into what does it actually look like to make a 12 year old, the president, <laughs> you know, slash right, exactly. Like, like yeah, exactly. Really, slash, what does it really slash look like? Slash commander of the armed forces. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and the fact that she, you know, and the thing that I think is so, I, I, you know, I love Maddie so much, but the thing that I think is, fascinating about it when you juxtapose maddie's fear of the flame her resistance to power the fact that she doesn't want it the fact that she truly believes that because she doesn't want it that octavia and everyone else are just like are gonna leave her alone because she's not a threat and you juxtapose that with somebody more like ethan who i wonder potentially if he loops back into the story at any point, you know, how that will happen. Because he, you know, of course, is, is not a nightblood, but he and a lot of the other novitiates, I think, have have more of a mindset of wanting that. Like he's super into mm-hmm. the death fighting pits. And he and he's, you know, initially very like bullying towards her and very like she's not one of us. Like he's he's more He's more of a junior blood reina than Maddie is or will ever be, <laughs> you know, in yeah, terms yeah, of yeah. like ideology, because he was raised with that. He was so young, you know, when all of this had happened. And Maddie, you know, everything about who she is, very much, I think, in parallel with with Luna, has sort of been shaped in opposition to and in resistance to that mindset. So if you had to make a 12-year-old the you know the pope like better maddie than <laughs> ethan you know but she also has a completely normal 12 year old child's like a, a a emotionally and psychologically healthy kids reaction to this which is mm-hmm. like this is scary and i don't want to do it and i'm afraid and i've been hiding from this my whole life but also here are my questions like what happens to clark if i don't do this like what happens to the most important person in my life if I say no, and Bellamy and Andrew kind of like, well, um, <laughs> uh, and then she's like, okay. But so, you know, so I think it's, um, you know, I, th- I just, I really felt watching Maddie make that decision, watching Clark's just utter crushing terror and, and misery and panic at the thought of it, like, it just, for me, it just made me, like, it made me so sad for all those other parents whose stories we're never going to get to see, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it it was yeah. just such a, like, what a tragic 
way of life and and what a tragic world to raise children into where like like god you think like every time a woman in grounder society gets pregnant she must be hoping to god her kid's not born in eye blood you know like just right like that yeah. kind of thing like it was just i was just thinking like god this must be like like it must be so much more terrifying than it is joyful until the kid is born and you realize like okay as red blood thank god this kid has a chance to survive you know um, right right it just like yeah. opened up this whole like i don't know why like it just it hit me so hard open up this whole world i was thinking like god like that was probably like lex's mama that came to take her away and luna's mom mm-hmm. who lost two kids because luna's brother mm-hmm. was in the conclave too you know yeah it's like god this is just horrifying you know and but i think it's important that like this time and maybe this is a good transition to talk about some of our like question mark reservations about the flame making a dramatic resurgence i <laughs> so so i i to me i feel like because the way the flame comes back into the story this time around, the way the ascension happens, the way the Nightblood child is made the commander is inherently on every level different than when it's happened before in the past. You know, it's it's different yeah. because now it's not being done because this is what we always do. This is how we've always done it. It's kind of like an emergency measure that's hollow on the part of several of the people involved. Gaia yeah. is the only person who has any deep belief around it. And even Gaia is kind of like talked into it by her mother. But for for Indra and for Bellamy, and even for Maddie, this isn't the sort of destined by the gods thing. This is no. triage. This is like, how do yeah. we, like in, in an immediate situation of crisis, this is like a sort of desperation thing that we're doing. And yeah, I think like for, for Maddie, it's the, the deciding factor is that she will save Clark's life. Right. And if she doesn't do it, Clark will almost certainly die. Right. And for Bellamy, I think it's primarily about, you know, saving his people in Shallow Valley and about saving Clark. And for Gaia, I think it's like Gaia doesn't want the war. You know, she right. recognizes that that is, that that is a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a gambit, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. it's a political gambit in order to make certain things happen. It's not, like you said, an actual kind of good faith reestablishment mm-hmm. of the commander structure and faith. Right. Well, and I think there's, I think there's one, one other piece of it that I forgot to mention before when I was talking about like, you know, sort of how things look from Bellamy's point of view. I think one other piece that I think it's really important to consider for why Bellamy makes his choice. And it's sort of like, it's not pretty, but I think it's really honest and human and I get it. I feel like there's a piece of Bellamy that feels like if you just removed the Blood Reina mask and the mantle of leadership, she'd magically become Octavia again. You know, like... Oh, that's absolutely... Like, if yeah, no, that's, offload, that's the hand wave that he's doing. Yeah, if you... Like, if somebody else becomes the myth, then there can only be one, and then she just instantly will snap back into being Octavia. And so yes. his willingness to make Maddie be that person, instead of Octavia being that person, is, you know, there's a very human, sibling, familial selfishness to it that I absolutely get. Yeah, I think it's important that, 
I think Bellamy is skipping, is like deliberately mentally skipping over those steps. Like he's skipping over, he's, he's convincing himself that if I just take the Blood Raina out of the bunker, mm-hmm. if I take the Octavia out of the, out of the bunker, Blood Raina will stay there. And then when she wakes up, she'll just magically be Octavia again and everything will be fine. Right. And he's sort of like mentally skipping over all the things, all the reasons he knows that, he knows that's not true. I think he's also mentally skipping over the implications of if I just take that kind of like leadership position away from Octavia and give it to Maddie, he's deliberately sort of being like, and then I will wave, we, I will wave a magic wand and everything will be hunky dory and Maddie right, won't right. have to do anything. Like Maddie, it'll be fine. We'll be in Shallow Valley. We'll be living in peace. We'll be farmers. Mm-hmm. Octavia will not be Bloodraina anymore and no one will ever have to fight another war. And so Maddie being the commander will not have any kind of horrible implications. Mm-hmm. Because we'll all just be, like, making daisy chains and skipping through meadows holding hands. Right. Like, this is this is what Bellamy is convincing himself of. So I think it's one of those things where, like you said, it's very human. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's co- completely human and understandable. It's also super shitty. Right, right. Because he exactly. is willing yeah. to just – he's willing to take that gamble. You know, he's willing to just be like – It'll be fine. And if it's not, we'll deal with it. We'll right. deal with it, but it'll be fine. Right. You know, like, and he knows, he knows in his gut that it will not be smooth sailing. And, and the fact that he is, that he's willing to kind of put Maddie in that position is unavoidably fucked up. Right. I think it's important as a way to illuminate for, for us, for both of them, their level of desperation. You know, like, neither of them yes, absolutely. in ordinary circumstances, you know, like, like one of, one of the core things. There's a reason know, none of this happened three episodes ago. Oh, There's yeah. a reason why they had to go through yes. all of the, like, various, like, aborted and truncated and glossed over versions of this argument that didn't fully become the argument until this moment. Because neither of them were ever going to go here until they absolutely felt like they had no other choice. You know what I'm just, you know what just occurred to me when you were saying that is, like, um, in, in the, in the realm of, like, things that season five is doing that work better than when they did them in season four. Like, like, remember, remember how much it graded on us in season four that they kept trying a new way to survive and then it would crumble and they would move on to a new thing. And it just sort of felt like, well, I'm not invested in any of these things now because I know that like, I don't, I know that none of these are going to be the real solution. So you're like, yeah, you know, so it just feels like you're just sort of So like, why do we spend an entire episode like worrying about this thing that right, just fizzled that, out? That we know that like by next week is going to be like totally moot and we're going to be on to a new thing. And because there was no, um, like there was no build to it, and it was like, well, we know like three episodes in, it's obviously too early for them to have found the magical solution. So, like, you know, how's this one going to blow up? Okay, how's this one going to blow up now? And I think what's different in season five, I think because it's all rooted in emotion and psychology and relationship and connection, that I felt everybody's desperation as everyone tried everything they could to keep us from getting to that moment where the flame goes into Maddie's head. And I was actually totally convinced up until the moment that it happened that somebody was going to stop it. And I think that, I think that that kind of structure of crescendo and of like try, fail, try, fail, try, fail, escalating the tension instead of kind of like bobbing from one unconnected thing to another, like I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but like you know, you know what I'm saying, right? Like no, no, I no, I, I yeah, no, I totally, get, I totally get like, it. Yeah. Like in in this episode, everyone tried a bunch of things. I mean, in previous episodes too, tried a bunch of things to to 
keep us from getting to the point of Octavia going to war. And, and all of those things so far have proven to be in varying degrees unsuccessful. But because of, of how the story sort of took us along on the journey of each of those decisions and ramped up the stakes higher and higher, we're left sort of like hoping like, okay, so maybe, maybe Octavia won't wake up, you know, like maybe they're like, oh, they're going to destroy the worms. Like, okay. So like, we're, you know, like all these are different things where you're like, maybe this one's going to fix it. Maybe this one's going to fix it. And I'm just, I find myself and I hadn't, it hadn't sort of, it hadn't quite clocked it until you, until you said what you said is now like that I, each time I'm like pulled into it and ready for this one to be the thing that works, even though I know it won't be because we're not at the finale yet. But like emotionally and in terms of like following the story, I'm like, okay, so, so you're going to do this thing and how's that going to work? How's that going to stop it? You know? Well, and also, and also I think the other huge element for why it works so well this season and didn't work so well in season four is because every single one of the crescendos this season is wrapped up in a relationship. Yes, exactly. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. There was a long arc that ended last up in, in 508 that was just Bellamy trying everything he could to avoid the inevitable conclusion that his sister was the problem and had to be removed. And so, like, there two things were happening simultaneously. There was a plot arc that had to do with the kind of ramping up of and escalating of the kind of, like, big picture political uh, military conflict between one crew and Shallow Valley and the issue of survival and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that was, like, the thing that was contributing to that escalation and tied up with it was Bellamy's relationship with Octavia and his unwillingness to simply look at the situation objectively and say, Octavia is the problem. She needs to be removed because of his relationship to her. So that when he got to the moment where he poisoned her, it was a he- simultaneously a huge turning point for the plot, you know, involving like going to war or not. And it was this humongous sort of culminating moment in the character arcs for Bellamy and Octavia, both this season and previous season. And like, so the thing with Bellamy and Clark, it's the same thing. Yeah. They've been like, there's been, they've been doing absolutely everything they possibly could since they reunited in, you know, in earlier in the season to avoid having to face head on, you know, that they have different priorities now and that that has, humongous implications for their relationship to each other, even if they still feel about each other the same way they did before. So there's this like tension between like for Bellamy and Clark, like they still feel about each other the same way they did before. They still feel like partners. They still want to be partners. You know, I think like they still have tremendous love and, and, you know, value for each other. And I think like, on you know, on Clark's side, like it seems to be, to have been building towards like something a little bit more conscious on her part for what, you know, think she's spent a lot of time thinking about what he means to her. And it's not that what they've learned over the course of these episodes and the ways that they've changed make them care about each other less. On the contrary, they still, you know, like they deeply care for each other and still have that connection and still have that ability to sort of like reassure each other and all that sort of like core relationship Bellamy and Clark stuff is still there, which is why they've been so desperately trying to skate by and avoid and like sort of paper over that like core problem of Clark's number one is always Maddie and she will burn everything to the ground for Maddie. 
And Bellamy will never do that. Like both because Bellamy is now heart and head Bellamy. So he's not going to make that kind of sacrifice. Um, you know, now he is the guy who will be able to poison his sister because it needs to be done, even though it kills him. And because he has these other people that he's not willing to trade Maddie's life for all those other people. And so like, so the, the sort of crescendo is simultaneously like the kind of plot element. Um, the way that the, the sort of big plot elements work into that. And then also the way like the crescendo has to do with these are two characters who have been avoiding having a reckoning about their relationship and about what it means to each other that they are reunited after six years in totally new circumstances being di- who they are now. And this is the moment when it exploded. I think it's actually really, it's really important that their feelings for each other, their closeness, their care for each other. It's, I think it's the fact that that hasn't changed. That's why, that, that's why the betrayal feels like such a betrayal. It's like, you're supposed exactly. to be with me. You're supposed to be my person. And that, that escalating frustration that we feel, you know, building in that scene where like, she's furious that he doesn't understand why the, she's reacting the way she's reacting and he's furious that she's not like they're they're both like it's i think it comes from that sense of i trusted you and expected that you were always going to be the person who understood where i was coming from and had my back and you don't have my back anymore and and so it's not just that that they've changed so much as individuals in the past six years and the, and the way their sort of priorities have reshuffled you know, and it's so like, and it's painful because it's so human. You know, that expectation that you have after you've been apart from somebody for a long time, that when you come back together, you can just sort of snap right into it. And I think that, I think it's because of the depth of that emotion and that connection and all of that, you know, five seasons of shared history. That's what culminates in Clark feeling like, you know, the, like her best friend in the world has, has crossed a line that you, she feels like you can't come back from. You know, like this was the one yeah. thing that she asked him to do. Bellamy walking away wouldn't be so cataclysmically, you know, huge and painful for both of them if they didn't mean the world to each other. If they didn't still have such tremendous love and care and and sort of like need for each other – then him walking away would be like, well, whatever. I mean, like characters walk away from each other all the time in the show. Yeah. And she and she'd be pissed, but she wouldn't be like shattered by it. But she is shattered in that scene. Exactly. And for him, it would be like, you know, the, the idea that like he's making a choice that she will hate him forever for. That he's like, I, you know, I accept that I have to sacrifice my relationship with Clark in order to do this. Like that would be like, well, whatever, who cares? You know, like, but that's like, that is an index of how Tremendous, like that is that is an index of how huge the sacrifice is for Bellamy, because that's not a small sacrifice. That 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 is like a humongous, tremendous sacrifice that he is making. And so the fact that they spent all this time, I think I you know, and I had over the last sort of few episodes been getting a little bit sort of like, okay, I feel like Bellamy and Clark are kind of like they're kind of in stasis, you know, like they're sort of it feels sort of awkward. It feels sort of like. You know, and we get all these moments where they're sort of pausing and reaffirming to each other and to the audience how much they mean to each other and and the understanding that still exists and the affection that still exists. And I was like, but something feels like off. Something feels like it's not 
It's not really like moving. We're sort of stuck. And this episode confirms I'm like, that was absolutely on purpose because those characters uh-huh. yep. were stuck, you know, yep. because they couldn't have the conversations that they needed to have. They didn't know how to. And this is the moment when it goes kablooey. And so I know like I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, I've seen some alert chatter about people who are really upset about this, you know, from a bunch of different perspectives, you know, from people who are just really mad at Bellamy for having made the choice that he did, which is legit. Like, I mean, I, I understand, I understand being pissed and being like, that wasn't cool. I, like I said, I personally am sort of like directly on the fence and just sort of being like, I'm sitting on the fence eating popcorn is my particular Uh, (laughs) response to this. But I I completely understand like both sides. Um, And so, you know, some other people were just sort of, and at first, like, I was like, Oh my God. I'm like, so like, how are we ever going to come back to this? Oh my God, you guys. Um, but like, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is the climactic moment in the story of their relationship in this season. They come back together, you know, the sort of like rising action, the sort of way that the story got more, com- more and more complicated was them rediscovering what their relationship and and what they mean to each other and reaffirming like, yes, you are still sort of like person, you're still my best friend, you're still this person that I really care about and still really love and still turn to and still work with, but not acknowledging the sort of undertow of everything that's changed. And so this is the climax and the turning point. This is the point where all that stuff they're pushing aside blows up and they have to turn towards figuring out Okay, what is, what is our relationship now? Not what was it then trying to sort of carry on as though they are the same. It's the, the relationship is the same, even though, you know, six years on. This is the point that forces them towards whatever the kind of like resolution is. So I'm like, if the conflict, if the climactic moment is a kind of like blowing up and blowing apart, then the resolution is going to be them coming back together. And I'm like, I'm so excited, you know, like. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's going it to be amazing. It feels to me like. Like, everything that this episode set up in their relationship is going to be about, like, okay, so, so it's, I mean, it's, it's lame straight for us, like, Maddie says it, like, she's never going to forgive you. You know, it's like, okay, so, but obviously, like, but we know that she's going to. Yeah. Nobody says that kind of thing four episodes before the end. Right, right. So and the has question, it, and then you get to the end, and it's like, well, it's true, right, you know, like, right. no. <laughs> yeah, you're right, she didn't, yeah. Good guess, Maddie. Um <laughs> And the reason I'm hopeful about it is I think, you know, like in a in a similar way, like we've, we've seen this with other, you know, of the other characters and storylines, you know, that we're watching in this season, people getting pushed apart and coming back together, pushed apart, come back together. And they're doing a really good job, I think, of, you know, on on so many levels with so many of these characters and pairings of letting the stakes of that six year separation really, really breathe. And letting us sit with them while also knowing that the fact that there's this shared mission that they all have of get everybody that I care about to the valley to live together in peace. And and whether that means stopping a war or starting a war or whatever side of the war you, you feel like you're on or whatever allegiances you're making, that all of these characters have this have this sort of same core desire for what they want to see happen after the dust settles um with the exception i think individually of of mccreary and octavia um but yes. everybody else you know has has but you have of, to have those people who are sort of like you have to have the people on the opposite ends of the rope pulling yeah, on it so that you have tension just to sow chaos exactly yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but um no i i totally agree like i think and i and i really appreciate like 
Although it's one of those things when you're watching through the first time and you don't know where it's going, it can, you know, like I said, with like the Bell, with the, the Bell Arc thing, the sort of buildup, I was like, I could sense the tension that something was off, but I didn't know why it was. But I think like, it's also very emotionally honest to sort of show, play out the stakes of these, you know, time jump reunions in a really messy sort of one step forwards, two steps back kind of way. Like, because you don't sort of reunite with people and go like, let's sit down and talk about ourselves and figure out who we are to each other now. You know, like you sort of fall into something and it takes a while to kind of like feel out where things are, where, you know, who the other person is and and how you're going to fit together now or not, you know. And that's like, it's messy. And it's, and it's complicated and it's awkward, you know? And, and so I, so I appreciate their willingness to sort of like dwell in that truth oh, yeah. before getting to the kind of like big kablooey, you know, like climactic moments. Yeah. There's so many things that have been swirling around and left unsaid between so many of these groups of characters and you can't establish a foundation and like this is one of the things that i that i really liked about the the kane and abby fight in episode two was that it was like there the 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 discrepancy between how he was talking about you know like i love you i never put you in danger you know and you know or be, like him being like because like i didn't do this because you were a doctor and then her being like well then why did you try to float me on the ark like that's like that's the thing where you're like oh you've been holding on to that for a long time girl like you yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like you didn't say it like you were you were in a place in your relationship you know you didn't want to push it you didn't want to say the harsh thing you were like well that's the past is the past let's move on but like you have to push through that ugly shit and say those things in order to then begin again from a foundation of a place of honesty. And that means that sometimes when you really care about somebody, it's hard to want to say those hard things. So they sort of build up and build up and build up until they explode. But I feel like one of the things that they've been doing really beautifully with this time jump is showing like with Clark and Bellamy, where it's like, you know, they don't like you understand why like they don't they don't want to get into it right away. They want to just like, like, let me just like hang out and like sit here by the fire with you and enjoy the fact that we're back together. I don't want to ruin it by fighting. Like, I don't want to like have to have a whole thing right now. It feels, and it feels delicate. When it feels delicate, you want to be careful because you don't want to break it. You know, you don't want to push it. Yes, You don't want to, you don't want to like, you don't want to have the confrontation. Uh-huh. You don't. You don't want to have a. You don't want to have an awkward conversation. You want to have a nice conversation. Exactly. You yeah. know. So you're going to keep trying to to keep things nice for as long as you can, especially if you keep feeling more and more uncertain. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you want the reassurance of like, but it's okay, right? It's okay, right? And like, the longer you do that, the worse it's going to be when it explodes. You know, and that's basically what happened right, right in this in this episode for Clark and Bellamy and, you know, and, and also for uh, Bellamy and Octavia. I, the, like, the last thing I want to say about, like, just as a kind of, like, mention thing on, for Blark, from the, from the more explicitly shippy perspective, another huge blind spot for Clark is that Clark's point of view right now is, if I die, I die. Whatever. As long as Maddie is safe. Clark is perfectly willing to die. She's her number one worry is not like, how do we get me out of here without being executed? She's like her perspective is like, well, if if you've got a solution that keeps Maddie safe from the flame and saw, you know, keeps space crew safe, but I die, I want being executed like Clark would be fine with that. And the thing that she's forgetting is that 
Bellamy isn't fine with that. And Maddie isn't fine with that. Like, they are the two people who will not accept that, like, she is not an acceptable loss for them. The sort of final straw for Bellamy, although I talked about it in the last podcast, like, all the, all the many, many, many factors that contributed to Bellamy finally, you know, realizing and confronting, like, okay, Octavia is the problem that I have to remove and poisoning her. But the tipping point was Clark. And part of his plan with Indra was like, you know, we're like, we're going to do this and we're not going to go to war and I'll come get you out. So, like, Clark can't see that these are people who are willing to – who are not willing to just let her sacrifice herself. She's willing to sacrifice herself. And they're like, uh, no, you know. And and I do think, like, there is an element – like, I – the scene with Maddie, Gaia, and um, Bellamy just about brought me – like, I mean, that was an amazing, gorgeous scene. Um, again, so well written and so well acted. Like, it was just, like, so touching – but I do think that there is a sort of undercurrent of, you know, this, and this is, this is one of those things where it's like, I think, I think it is deliberate and it's just kind of like you said, showing that Bellamy is, is how desperate he is. But like, there's an inherent imbalance between two adults and one child. And the child kind of like hero worships at least one of those adults. You know, like Bellamy, we know from, from the end of 503 that like, Maddie has been ha- has learned from Clark that Bellamy is like one of the most important people. Like her her immediate reaction when she sees him is like, "Awesome, you're here. Clark will be so happy. Come, you know, like come with me. We're gonna save her." Like you know, her her immediate assumption is like Bellamy is a person that I can trust and look up to. And Bellamy also does know that Maddie won't sacrifice Clark, and he's counting on that. You know, and like. And that's kind of shitty. I, and I think it's like one of those things where like, I, I don't want to say he's leveraging that against Maddie because that makes it sound like it's more, it's like a calculation in a bad yeah, way. Whereas I think it's is- more just like, it's more just like Bellamy being like, I don't want Clark, you know, I don't want the war. I don't want Space Crew to die. I don't want Clark to die. Maddie also definitely doesn't want Clark to die. She doesn't want, you know, I, I you know, she doesn't want to go to war. So like, here are the ways that I can... I can persuade her to see my point of view, but like, so I think that's where, that's where Bellamy's coming from, but it doesn't remove the fact that there is something inherently kind of shady about, again, a grown up who's someone that she like trusts and looks up to saying or implying like, and if you don't do this, then probably your mom's going to die. You know, like that's just never going to be. Like you said, it's not, it makes it, it's not really truly a free choice. Like Maddie did choose it. Right. And they would not have, if she had said no, they would have honored that. But it's also not entirely an uncoerced choice. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think that the thing, the thing that, that, you know, in that moment that I think even though you're like watching him do this extremely unethical thing that that keeps you so much in sympathy with him is like the the moment that just broke my heart was you know look on his face when he says like you know if there was anything else that i could do i would and you just know like like if bellamy could take the flame he would do it like even if it killed him he would do it in a heartbeat yes you know like if there was you absolutely know that bellamy is like if bellamy has like been sitting around thinking like I fucking wish I had black blood right now because I would put that flame in my head in a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And that's why where, so it's like, you know, and, and I also do think that it's important that like, 
you know, like Maddie is not his first plan. His first plan is Indra and that gets botched by forces he can't control. So this yes. is And then in this is this is Indra's plan. Yeah. And he's like, "Okay, I will go along with this. If you tell me that this will work." Right, right. You know, and that and that like we'll do X Y and Z. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's reliant on Indra's superior knowledge of sort of the social dynamics amongst one crew of saying like, "No, this is a like this is our our only viable alternative leader." Yeah. And like the big blind spot of Indra is that Bellamy doesn't, I think, entirely know about or appreciate is Indra, like as we talked about, fundamentally doesn't sort of blink at 12-year-old girls becoming commanders. Right. For her, this is like, this is an extremely normal age to, you know, murder other children and take on the mantle of leadership. Like, why is everyone all squeamish about it? This is what regular people do. So like, you know, Bell, so guy, or Indra being like, yeah, yeah, no, this plan will work. It'll be totally fine. Bellamy's like, cool. He doesn't realize that there's a whole lot of other questions about the situation that he should be asking that he's not, you know, that there's other information in the background with Gaia or with, uh, I keep saying Gaia. Well, with Gaia and Indra that, you know, he, just, and again, he's just kind of so in a state of desperation where he's just kind of like, awesome, sweet. Don't know, the, don't need to know the details. Let's right, just do it, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I do, um, I know we have, we have so much ground to cover and still because there's so much, so much happened in this episode, but I do want to talk a little bit about, um, the, the Gaia Indra, and Indra Octavia dynamics. Yes. Play. Oh, can I? Okay. Oh, yes. One last theory that I think that I want to get out there, and it's uh, because I'm really excited about it. Um, and then we'll shift over to talking about Gaia Indra. But so I was talking to um, a friend of ours, friend of the podcast, uh, Capital Chick, on Twitter. Um, she's a if you if you listen to May We Geek Again, which is another um, hundred podcast. Uh, also friends of the podcast. Shout out to Pod Crew. She's a frequent guest on there. And she's also written some stuff for Hypable. She's super smart. She's awesome. Anyway, so she was – we were talking about the flame thing last night and, and like, trying to figure out, like, okay, where where is this going? You know, like – because, like, this whole sort of, like, thing about, like, flame is back. Commander's back. It kind of fizzles out. Like, it doesn't work. Partly because, like, it sort of worked in that that one guy – when when Maddie turned on the the commanderness, he knelt down. But then Clark was like, "Oh hell no!" and shot him in the head because that's what Clark does now. And also, I will also say we don't have to go into this, but I I think the other sort of slow burn character thing that is going to pay off soon that's also ties into plot is a Clark Maddie confrontation because this is like the third time, third or fourth time, Clark has just like up and murdered somebody. In cold blood to protect Maddie. And Maddie has been like, Clark, what are you doing? Like, Maddie does not want this. And Clark keeps doing it. And so I think that's going to come to a head. Anyway, so um, Capital Chick said, she pointed out, she was like, um, she's like, well, Clark and Maddie are heading for, you know, for Shallow Valley where Allegius is. And they've been very careful to show us Becca's company logo on Allegius stuff. And we know that, like, Nightblood was developed as for the Allegius Mining Company. Like, we know that there are tie-ins. And so she was like, I wonder if that plays into the plot. So, which I love. Like, I, as soon as she said that, I was like, of course. That's why they had to get the flame in Maddie's head and then send Maddie to Shallow Valley. Because the flame has ties to Allegius. And that, so, like, I think she was absolutely right. I think... So somehow the plot, the flame is going to be relevant to 
is going to be like plot relevant as a piece of Elegius connected technology. Um, Capital Chick's um, suggestion, which I think is a good one, is that it could be that Maddie has access to information that they need. Like if there's like information that Becca stored in the flame, there's a possibility that there might be information that she can access. But I also just thought like it occurred to me like, okay, what if, what if it turns out that it's not the flame as a thing that goes inside someone's head with the commander's memories that makes it important, but rather like that it turns out that they need that, that, they need it as a piece of technology that can interface with the Elegius technology. So like it has to be taken out of like the way that Maddie's, you know, like if, if Maddie sort of, I don't, I don't think we're ed- heading for an end of this, of, you know, the season where Maddie is still the commander and they're taking commanders on. Like, I think the commander thing is pretty obviously dead after, you know, after it sort of failed utterly here. Um, but I wonder if like, if what happens is, they discover like somehow there's there's something that happens they need to be able like there's some technological problem that they need to solve and it turns out that the thing that they need to solve it is literally the piece of technology that is the flame. Yes. No, I love this idea. I we when we talked about this a little bit, we <laughs> we accidentally podcasted last night. We were talking on the phone and then we were like spinning all of our theories and then we were like, should we save this for the podcast? Oh well. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, we but can't I, be stopped. Even when we're just trying to like talk on the phone, we just Yeah. Th- I mean the po- the origin was the podcast was just us literally talking of, on the phone and my husband being like, You should just record this. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm psyched as hell about this idea. I think it's brilliant and I'm really hopeful about it because I, so, so just like to take a few more minutes on the flame before we transition. Cause we mentioned this before and then didn't quite get into it. But so, so we both are sort of like on record as being over the commander clans, hierarchical religion structure of grounder society as a way that societies operate. Like that it is that, that it feels like, and I I honestly think this season in particular, like enough people have said the words, the time of the commanders is over that. I think it's very clear that they're setting up that by the end of this season, that will be true. (laughs) That like that, that will be that the time of the commanders is in fact over. over. Yeah. And, and that, and that whoever is left alive at the end of this season and whatever the big finale twist is that, uh, that a new way is going to come out of that, that, that does not in that sort of finally and definitively kind of closes the door on that, hierarchical social structure clan like that sort of clan division model the religion and theology that surrounds this piece of technology that all of that will sort of go kaput um i think the flame is run out of story in terms of as a way to anoint a leader personally that's yes agreed but i yeah. but i think that as a piece of technology that is the only physical thing that is from the same world as the allegiance ship I think it is full of possibilities. And something that I was thinking about, so I was thinking about this when you were mentioning the, like, you know, does Maddie end up having the, like, Lexus R-rated memories in her head, which did not even occur to me. Because, because I, and the reason, well, here's the reason that that had not occurred Safe to me. Safe search! That's, but the reason that that had not occurred to me is because, like, we know, we know very little um, about what the process 
actually is like to like kind of commune with the spirit of the commanders you know we like except we sort of we know we know how it is for clark although that's different because it also has the alley component of it um and we know that it's something that when lexa does it that she goes into like deep deep meditation so for me how i kind of always pictured it in my head it was a little bit less like their memories are sort of straight downloaded into your brain and more like being in the room with them the way Clark was with Becca and Allie. Um, so yeah. So like you can like yeah. ask them questions and like commune with them, but not because like it isn't like it becomes sort of cacophony and chaos in your brain as soon as the, you know, the chip grafts to your, you know, brainstem, like there's suddenly 36 dead grounders all shouting over each other <laughs> you know there's there's an element of agency on the on the part of the person who like has a chip in their head to get information is what it sort of feels like to me yes you know? um yes yes so so i feel like like and i know i'm sure it's too much to hope that we would ever get erica sarah back for becca flashbacks but i feel like the idea of a maddie with access to becca and becca's memories and becca's knowledge if if the reason why it's in her brain is because something that Becca knows, either about these people, about Allegius, about technology, about like something that can be done with this ship, about Allegius three, the other ships that are out there, about Order twenty or Order eleven or whatever, um, like if there's if there's something that that Becca knows that Becca knew because she's a like Becca is a contemporary of these people like she's from the same world essentially if there's something that she knows that maddie has access to that sparks what the kind of end game survival plan ends up being um i think that would be i think that'd be really cool i i would like that and i also do feel like you said i think the idea that the flame gets used as like used in a in a capacity that's not what we expect and it's sort of you know, and we sort of bid goodbye to it in a way where it becomes a tool that like, you know, it's sort of last purpose is to be a thing that unlocks the way that all of humanity survives. Like that feels like a really kind of like noble and poetic end to the line of the commanders sort of circling yeah. back around and kind of beginning and ending with Becca, like beginning and ending yeah, with yeah. the technology that Becca created, while also I think sort of definitively closing the door to it as like a a political MacGuffin, you know, like as long yes, as yes. as long as Gaia or anybody else is carrying it around in a little box, and as long as there are any Nightbloods, especially Maddie, you know, I think I think Clark's always going to be afraid that someone is going to stick it in Maddie's head, you know, like I think it has to sort of be like destroyed or transformed into something else for Clark to feel safe about it. So I kind of feel like. I think, and I think because we have like finale pictures of people that have the black line on their foreheads, what I wonder is if maybe either, like either Maddie keeps it in until the finale and she's sort of like, you know, issuing commands, you know, to Raven via Becca's brain, which would be kind of dope to watch. Or potentially, <laughs> um, if they take it out to use it for something else, but Maddie has to pretend like it's still in there, that could also or Maddie. Be- or Maddie announces something like, you know, she says, like, I I am like if Maddie sort of like says, I am choosing to remove the flame in order to 
save us all by doing this other thing. And that's something that like that choice is such that it makes people loyal to her. You know what I mean? Like that people choose to follow that, that like the idea of the commander and that idea of that black mark sort of transforms into something new as well. Like, so the flame is transformed into something sort of new while kind of carrying on the, without being so totally removed from the old tradition. And that also the idea of the commander as a kind of like political figure or symbol to follow or, or like a cause to rally to is also transformed so that it becomes like, not that people are following the commander, you know, like it's like whoever is walking around with those memories in their head, but rather like they're following Maddie or they're fighting for Maddie. You know what I mean? Well, I, which I, which I like because I, I think that like, I think that would fit very nicely with the idea that, you know, the sort of the, like the black line on the forehead, which is the sign of Maddie being anointed the commander. Like now everyone is wearing that mark. So, so it's kind yeah. of like, like it's something that feels kind of like beautifully democratic about it. Like we are all the commander. We yeah. are all like, there's no, like there's no more kind of religious hierarchy to our leadership. It's like the thing that, you know, it's the society that Kane's been trying to build. You know, this exactly. I, and I think it would be a beautiful thing if Maddie if Maddie made the choice to not be the commander because she not because like she's like, ew, I have this thing in my head with gross memories. You know what I mean? Like if it was a combination of first of all, in order to like the thing that will really save everyone is for me to like give up this thing that confers power on me. But she's willing to sort of say like I'm going to give up this thing that makes me the avatar of power or whatever because it's for everybody. But also for her to to, to sort of have – because, like, she's seen Octavia. She's seen Blood Reina, you know, and she's sort of seen her, like, hero fall. If, if Octavia – or if Maddie winds up being the one to kind of look around and go and say, hey, I think the problem is the hero worship. I think the problem is that you guys look at me – as being like, because I have this thing that makes me special, it makes me infallible. It makes me, and it makes me above you. And it makes me, you know what I mean? Like, so that, like you said, so that she sort of, she's, if she's the one who's to sort of initiate, I'm not the commander, we all are. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's something kind of like really beautiful about yeah. that. I really, I hope, I hope that's what it ends and up. And it would give her agency, which I really yeah, want. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, let's talk about Adina Porter in this episode. Because... Adina Porter just today was nominated for an Emmy. Yes. Which is amazing and wonderful. Oh my God. And it was like amazing timing because I was like watching this episode this week. I remember thinking on multiple occasions, like, God, Adina deserves an Emmy for this work because she was out of this fucking world in this. I mean, like, Adina is always amazing, always amazing, but she was next level incredible in this episode. Just like every scene she was in. She yeah. just was so moving and so just like, yeah. Anyway, congratulations, oh Adina. I've never seen American Horror Story or your work in it, but I know that this is richly deserved based solely on your work in this in this episode alone. <laughs> That's what I was I was saying, like, I I'm going to I'm choosing to interpret this Emmy nomination as being for this episode of the hundred. <laughs> because Yes. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> Because, no, because she's so, I mean, I I think, I feel like this is pretty solidly enshrined as, like, if it isn't my, like, most favorite ep- 
ever Indra episode, it's in the top three because of the, the range, like the, the range of emotions that like the journey that she goes on in this episode and all of the baggage that it brings up for her, you know, like the, the, the glimpses back into her past, the, the connection that she has with both like her scene with Octavia and her scene with Gaia and how wrenching they both were in very different ways and her doing the thing that we've never seen her do ever, which is step forward to take leadership on herself. She's introduced to us from the beginning and, you know, everything we know about her as a, as a person is that she is, she's one of those people who was born to be the like loyal second in command. Loyalty is one of her like defining characteristics. And I think that her part of her evolution over the story, which I think has been so interesting is the way that without, without reducing it in, in any way, like that loyalty shifts and kind of transmutes a little and it becomes less a loyalty to systems and ideologies and more loyalty to people she trusts and believes in leaders that she believes are the right leader for the right reasons instead of just like, because the law says so, you know, and, and loyalty to protecting the people that she cares about in a way that makes her more ethically flexible about codes of behavior that she'd always, you know, thought were, against her teachings or against who she is you know like when she learns to kind of like fold certain members of sky crew into her kind of you know inner circle using guns stepping away from like all the sort of the way that we sort of see her her thinking of all but this you know she in this episode reaches the point that you know that bellamy hit in the last episode where it's like the one thing that like everything about who she is sort of like screams out that she would never ever do is sabotage a leader and step into their place like it's just it is it is the anti-indra it's the least indra thing she could ever possibly have done which is why she's totally likely to get away with it until miller steps in i think that the fact that everybody like she she and bellamy are relying on the fact that her essential core Indra-ness stands so in opposition to the idea that she could possibly have been in any way even kind of connected to what happened to Octavia is both a sign of how much she's changed and also a sign of how well these people know her, know who she is and, and what, what makes her, what makes her, her. So, so the, that scene, you know, the, her speech to the people. I think what's really fascinating about it is the fact that it's a blend of truth and lies. Like the way that it, that she is both telling them things that are like deeply true from her own soul about how much Octavia means to her, how deeply she cares for her, how hard she fought to make Octavia the leader that she'd served to be, to keep her in her position, to support her, to elevate her, to keep the people in line for her, for Blood Reina. Um, like all of that's true. And also underneath all of that is the big thing that she isn't saying, which is, and I was wrong to do those things. And I wish I'd made different choices. Yeah, the other part that I loved and I thought was so powerful about um, Indra in this episode and Adina's performance is I think everything and, – and this ties into what we were talking about earlier. 
everything that Indra is doing is rooted in such deep, deep love for Octavia and for Gaia, you know, and like there's that line that in, in her speech to the people that where she says, you know, she loves Bloodraina as she does her own daughter. And when, when she says that, you know, that that, that is one of the things that she's saying that's true, you know, and this sort of blend in truth and lies. That is the truth. And part of the reason why she can sell the lie is because the, the truth of that, of her saying that is so deep, you know, and so apparent. So like it's it's rooted in deep deep love, which I think is and the other like the other thing that feels so transformational about that is that that's something that I that I think Indra in previous seasons had tried not to show. That's something that she tried to bury, and we found out why. You know, and part of the reason why was because of Gaia. You know, because because she had also experienced deep pain of losing this person that she loved. You know, and she's still trying to sort of carry on but it's like to so to see like to see that like indra the way one of the ways that indra transformed over six years was to become more loving and more soft is just incredible and like such an amazing like i think that's why you can sort of sense like what an an amazing person indra is because like to live through what those people lived through we don't even know what it is but we know it's really bad to live through that and come out the other side of it side of it and say I need to say I love you to the people I love more, you know, even when they say love is weakness back to me. Like, that's that's amazing. And then the other part about that was so, like, so, I think, like, hit so hard, and this is a testament to Adina's performance, is the level of vulnerability that Indra displayed. And the contrast... Like it was, you you know, and it was, it was remarkable because like seeing that kind of vulnerability in Indra drives home how rarely you see, have seen Indra emotionally vulnerable and also drives home. Like, I think to anyone who didn't realize this or might not have noticed, that's a fucking choice that Adina has been making every single day when she's played that character. And, and so when that sort of, when that emotional control that, that defines Indra so much, when she lets that go, when she says to Octavia, when Octavia says, you know, like, you, you left me to do that alone. And she says, I know. And that was wrong. And I'm sorry. You know, and you can see and, and, you know, without, and like, without getting like, without swinging this again, this is why Adina deserves an Emmy without swinging all the way to the other end of the spectrum and like, you know, she's total control and then zero control with still a, a tremendous amount of control that you can tell Indra is exerting, which also just tells you how profound these emotions are, you know, that she, that she's choosing to make herself so vulnerable to say to Octavia and Octavia, who's angry and who's vengeful in that state, you know, to say to her, like, yes, I was wrong. I fucked up part of my atonement for that mistake is facing the consequences of it. And one of those consequences is who you've become. And I still love you, but I have to stop you. You know, like, I think we feel, again, we feel how human, like, like all of those scenes felt huge, not because they were huge for the plot in terms of what's going to happen, although they were, but because it's so, so viscerally, clear as an, you know, in the, to be an audience member watching 
of how huge these moments are emotionally for these characters in this relationship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's not just that Octavia woke up and it's like, oh shit, Octavia woke up and she knows that Indra betrayed her, which means like, which means that we're going to war, which means this is going to happen. It's not like just sort of like, boom, 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 here are the sort of like events that are going to happen. It's like, again, this is another relationship, like the tension between Indra and Octavia and Indra's growing sort of like, I mean, to go back to what we were talking about before, like the whole season we've seen Indra trying and trying and trying to avoid this confrontation. She's been doing everything she can to stop Blood Raina from making the mistakes, from making these mistakes without actually confronting her or turning against her. And this is the moment when it all goes to shit and she can't avoid it anymore. And she has to have this face-to-face confrontation you know, with this person, not with her leader, but with Octavia, this person that she's been trying to put off. And then boom, here it is. And so it's a huge moment for plot, but it's also such, you know, it's like this culminating climactic moment for these characters and for this relationship as well. And it plays so beautifully off of dynamics that have been building for so long and like long before she became Blood Raina, but just sort of the like, you know, the difference between you know, like hot-headed Octavia and more wise and measured Indra. Like even even when they had similar agendas and perspectives, when Octavia was her second and they were like much more closely aligned, like still like they think very differently and they react in crisis very differently and they have very different life experiences. And so it like, as with the Bellamy and Octavia stuff, you know, it it's the sort of the big explosion of the arc that's been building over the course of this season, but it also is so aware of everybody's history, you know? Yes, yes, And that's exactly. one of the things yes. that makes the season different is that, like, everybody's history with everybody else is alive all the time. You know, like, we, we know nothing, like, we've seen nothing of Gaia and Indra's relationship before we met Gaia. Like, all of that was just told to us, and yet we know everything that we would need to know for that scene between them where Indra finally gives Gaia the thing that Gaia has been aspiring to her whole career, but does it for Indra reasons. And Gaia both accepts it and also is like, okay, but like, this is, this means something to me and it's hollow for you. Like all of the sort of emotional complexity of what that means between those two women and all of their love and familial history and the, complicated choices that children make when they don't choose the lives their parents want for them and all of that stuff is like so it just lives so close to the surface and a lot of that is performance because Adina and Tati are incredible and and Tati has said you know like that she that she really feels like she has a sort of like mom mentor relationship with Adina like that they really just kind of clicked immediately which I feel like just just leaps across on the screen but it's also the writing you know it's also the way that this is a relationship that you know even though we haven't gotten like a ton of screen time of it everything that we've gotten has been so sort of precisely calibrated and and unpacked so carefully that you know that you feel like you're watching a relationship that you've been watching the whole time and and it's all been leading to this moment where you know where where Indra comes to her and basically is like your religious beliefs that I have been making you feel shitty about your entire adult life are now the only thing that can save us you know <laughs> like yep. like yeah yep. I was just like this is 
this is amazing. And and again, like it's the culmination of what's been building between the two of them, between each of them individually in their own relationships with Octavia over the course of this season. But it also pulls back in all of the stuff that estranged them in the first place. And it's very important, I think, that that it shows us that like even even after six years, that hasn't been mended. You know, like there's yeah, still yeah. six years made Indra, a different person who's more expressive about her feelings and more willing to be wrong and more vulnerable and and less sure about the black and whiteness of everything, kind of in contrast to how it made Octavia even more so. But what it hasn't done is magically fix a lifetime of being kind of ideologically on totally different sides of this big cultural rift between war and religion that defined who they were individually and who they were to each other and the ways that each of them represented a thing the other one kind of couldn't stand, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. And as you know, as you're talking, I was just thinking about the kind of paradigm that we've been using to talk about this episode. And like, this is this is the episode where everybody who's been trying to sort of like avoid confronting some big truth, trying to sort of like take half measures to avoid having to do the thing or face the thing that they know is real. Everybody who's been trying to sort of like, you know, rob Peter to play, to pay Paul or to have your cake and eat it too, where that explodes and they have to make a choice. And I think we see that in, in this relationship, we get that confrontation for Gaia. I think we see that in the sort of revelation that she's been trying to hold on to her faith in the commanders while also being loyal to Bladrena, who, as Indra, you know, points out, she helped create. And this is the point where Gaia can no longer kind of like pretend like those two things are compatible. Exactly. She has to pick, yeah. pick a loyalty and she has to admit to herself that she never did let go of her original faith. Despite the fact that she helped create this new cult that is now opposed to it. And that's a kind of like microcosm of the, the tensions within one crew, which that kind of like you are one crew or the enemy of one crew had been sort of covering over. Like, and I think as an audience, there's a really, really, really cool way that they had like, the show set us up. They kind of like pulled a fun bait and switch, right? Because like we saw, we got like, we got in the flashback episode in 502, we got the sort of like, here's how Octavia wind up, wound up being Blood Reina, this unquestioned leader of one crew. And then like we got to the moment where that happened and then we jumped ahead. And what they showed us was everybody chanting her name, everybody being like completely devoted to her. We got the thing in the desert, you know, where like her army like surrounded her body and like 11 of them died willingly to save her. So they were kind of like they set us up to be like one crew, one crew, one crew. You're either the, you know, you're the one crew, you're the enemy of one crew. Everybody is one crew. They're all these people who believe this. There's no, there's no dissent. And then slowly, 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 they've been chipping away. Like, first it was Kane, and they led us to believe that it was only Kane. And then there were a few defectors, and they led us to believe those left. And then this episode turns out, as soon as Octavia is gone and that threat of, like, being executed for dissenting is gone, there are a lot of people who are pretty much like, okay, that cool, ex you know, that six-year experiment is over. Time to go back to the old ways. Yeah. 
The crowd reactions are really interesting in that scene. Yeah. So like there's a, there's an also like there's a culmination of like this is the culmination of a very slow sort of build up that the writers have been doing in terms of telling us what's actually happening in one crew where they lead us from the beginning of setting up to be like one crew is one crew. There is only one crew, you know, and then to now being like, actually, that's never been true. Like, and the only people who really believe that were true was maybe Octavia. Because Indra didn't believe it. Kane didn't believe it. Gaia didn't believe it because she's secretly worshipping Becca. You know? Like, turns out, there's only a handful of people who completely drank the Kool-Aid. Like, Miller and Nyla and a few other people and Octavia. And so, so like, that's a kind of cool payoff. And then Octavia, I think, like, you know, like, the other big person who sort of, like, has been trying to put off confronting things that she knows are true and that she knows, you know, are eventually going to blow up is Octavia, obviously, who knew that, you know, who arrested Clark for a crime that she knew that Bellamy and Indra were guilty of. And she tried, like, the two people that she loves, Indra and Bellamy, she tried to just kind of, like, pretend they didn't do it too. She tried to, like, she's going to symbolically punish Clark, but she's not going to punish them because she... Because without them, she's totally alone. As we see at the end of this episode, when she finally just sort of confronts it, like, they have betrayed me. You know, like, there's no – she can't pretend that it was just Clark anymore. Like, now it's she knows it's them. And we get that amazing shot, you know, the pan up on her face as the doors close, where she goes from being stony-faced Blood Reina to Octavia alone and totally broken by the knowledge that everyone in the world that she loves most believes so much that she needs – to be deposed and taken down, that they would poison her and keep her prisoner, you know, try to like physically incapacitate her from being able to lead. And like that betrayal is something that she's known and has been deliberately looking away from until she couldn't anymore. So it's just like, it's again, like the more I think about this episode, the more I'm like, Miranda Kwok, like all the applause because it's just like the, and, and, and all the applause to the entire writing team because like all these things we're talking about paying off. Like this is the work of a group of people who have always been all been working together to pull off this, like these huge arcs and this is where they land. But man, like they all, they all land so beautifully, all these humongous moments and, and like so, so seamlessly knit together, paying off, you know, the climactic payoff of plot developments and the climactic payoff of character arcs and relationship arcs. Yeah, I I think the thing that just makes me sort of giddy about it, you know, just in terms of of like how of how it works as story is feeling like our most frequent complaint, like the most common reason why we don't like something is that we feel like it's the show forgetting its history, forgetting who these people are, forgetting why they matter to each other, forgetting the thing that just happened and jumping onto a new thing and, and ignoring or like that. forgetting about relationships and characters in favor right. of plot, plot, plot. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like, like the, the sort of the idea that we care about explosions because explosions are really cool to watch and not because we are deeply emotionally invested in what's going to happen to the people trapped inside. That kind of thinking. You know, that we care about battles just to watch people clang swords around and not because, like, it means something to us emotionally, the impact of that battle on these characters. And the thing that I feel like season five is just crushing it on every level, with every character, with every storyline, in every one of the worlds that's been introduced, like, like, truly from, like, top to bottom – 
with almost no exceptions, is that it has not for a moment forgotten anybody's history. The connections, the relationships, who these people are, and, and like, and as a writer, thinking about like the challenge of doing that in the context of this time jump, like it's, it's actually an enormous writing challenge. Like it's harder now than it's ever been to, because you have to create, like you have to give us a version of like the, like this whole new Clark, this brand new version of Clark, who is both fundamentally changed by six years that we didn't see all of. And also, instantly recognizable in every situation as the Clark Griffin that we've lived with for five seasons. And that is incredibly hard. And and everybody, you know, like Abby is both fundamentally always Abby Griffin and also this unrecognizable new Abby who is addicted to opioids and is completely being governed and driven by that addiction, you know, or this new version of, of Murphy, who is like all, all of these characters, you know, Amori, oh my God, like Amori. But, oh my God, so, yeah, yeah. So the challenge of writing versions of these characters that both map with deep psychological accuracy onto like the core things of these people that don't change, that will never change, that are like who they are, while also truthfully and and realistically acknowledging the magnitude of what a time jump like that means for characters who with a tiny scant handful of exceptions were together for a fraction of the time they were apart you know and i think this episode is a really beautiful example of the thing that has been or kind of not even an example like a kind of a like a culmination like a peak of of these patterns that have been building all season long where everything about how the plot is evolving, like things are happening because of who these people are and because of who they've always been, who they are to each other. I just think it's fantastic storytelling. Like it's so exciting to watch. And it just makes me like, I just like, I, <laughs> like, I know it's not really dark and grim, but I also watch it. And it's like, I feel joyful. I feel like, like this is just, this is great story. And they fixed the thing, like the thing that used to pull me out of the story so much, or when I would get pissed about things, the thing that I always got pissed about was I was like, there's a big obvious thing that you sort of like hand waved past to make a big shiny piece of plot happen. And this season, I think is like, this is the, this is the proof that you can make everything absolutely inherently fundamentally driven by love and relationships and human connection and and all that stuff as like the driver of plot and not lose a single lick of the crazy banana pants you know off the charts exciting bloody crazy stuff that makes this show this show like you can still have worms and explosions and rocket ships you know but it's all coming from this place of really beginning and ending with like who are you Clark Griffin. Who are you, yeah. Octavia Blake? You know? Yeah. Well, and I think I like one it. really great one really great um comparison for that is there's a ton of really like fairly sort of direct visual parallels and sort of situation parallels um between for for Bellamy and Clark between this episode and 411 from last season, particularly in like one of them being chained up in a boiler room. While the other one is like, sorry, gonna do a thing that will almost, that like, 
is going to hurt and or kill the most important in the world thing in the world to you or person in the world to you because I'm convinced that this is the best thing for the most number of people. And like that episode, like last season, you know, it was like Clark knocked Bellamy out and then, you know, changed him up because she had left Octavia outside and she didn't want him to open the bunker door. Right. And like the thing that we were so frustrated by that didn't work like, and that should have been a like, they have opposite perspectives, you know, like this is a big tragic betrayal and misunderstanding and it didn't really land. And the reason and the problem was they never landed the emotional beats. The big twist thing with Clark stealing the bunker was a great twist ending to the prior episode, but did not give a sufficient view into Clark's point of view to understand why the hell she did it. The, the sort of emotional stakes of that choice were not carefully set up enough. That side of it was able to land, like they, because they chose the like big plot moment over the emotion, over setting up like, here's why, here's how Clark arrived at this moment, you know, so you could f- more fully understand how she could just decide like, well, guess I'll just kill these people. Um, you know, and, and then the other problem was like, that con- the confrontation between Bellamy and Clark at the end where she was pointing the gun at him and then, you know, didn't shoot him. They, it was like, it cut off abruptly and we never got a return to it. And that emotional, that emotional climax never got a moment to breathe or to sort of like have a denouement that allowed it to really land. And so, so it was like a parallel situation with Bellamy and Clark reversed. And I think they, the, the sort of visual parallel of, of Clark being chained to a pipe in a boiler room while Bellamy walked away and she screamed at him is a deliberate parallel to her doing that to Bellamy in the, in the bunker last season. But because of the very, very careful ways they've been building to this confrontation as a specifically paying off the emotional stakes of what had happened to them before and also really following through, like the confrontation happens early on in the episode. So it follows through on the implications of it. This time it landed and worked like amazingly well, better than it ever has. And last time it didn't. And so like, that's the thing where it's like, hallelujah. Like this is, this is the beautiful thing. So like tragically, I have to go in a few minutes and we haven't even gotten to shallow Valley. (laughs) And I have so many things I want to say about Shallow Valley. Oh, my God. First things first, to foment a riot <laughs> and to, uh, you know, to enable Space Crew's escape, Murphy throws a rock into a crowd. And this is the most important moment of the storyline for two reasons. <laughs> Number one, it allows Murphy to say, this is my masterpiece <laughs> in a line delivery that I think Richard Harmon should, like... Where is a name tag everywhere he goes? Because it was, it was like, mwah, it was beautiful. My favorite Murphy moment ever. And number two, far more importantly, that is also, that is how the Sharpeville massacre began in South Africa in what year, Claire? 1960. 1960, which you will know. If you have read Claire's novel, The Rewind Files, because that is a huge plot and character moment in that novel. Yeah. And obviously, 
At least some of those writers <laughs> in that room have read your novel. Somebody, and that was a shout out to you. I to say, hey Claire, <laughs> see you, babe. Great idea. <laughs> so when you so when you texted me, so I've been I I've been on Twitter hiatus for like uh, like a week or something. So I didn't see until but I came back after the episode because so you had told me like, hey, FYI, like somebody in the writer's room has read your book and that it was something that had to do with car stairs. And so I like so I was thinking, I was like, like, is it a dad thing? Like like I had no guesses. I was like, I have no idea what's yeah, gonna be. Yeah. Like my my best guess was like, do we get some kind of like backstory between Indra and Gaia about Gaia's dad? I don't know. <laughs> but then when he picked up the rock, I was like are they for real going to do what I think they're going to do? And then they did it. So so just like super, super quick <laughs> historical nerdery. For anyone listening who has not read the book, like which is not like a reproach. That wasn't like passive aggressive. But just like if you haven't. It is absolutely a reproach on my end. What is wrong with you? Read Claire's book. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, so, the, so the book is a time travel book. And the two kind of historical events which it loops around the most significantly are Watergate, which we talked about when Sachin interviewed us on the podcast, and the Sharpeville Massacre, which was kind of a watershed moment in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, where essentially a peaceful, nonviolent protest of, of Black African villagers in the township of Sharpeville was turned into a riot because somebody in the crowd and like and they and they don't know who it is like no one ever found out what happened but somebody in this crowd that has sort of been like you know simmering tension there's like racist white cops on one side of the fence and but there's like only a couple dozen of them and then this like huge 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 crowd on the other side of it and somebody in the crowd threw a rock and one of the white cops thought it was a gunshot panicked and started shooting and within 60 seconds like 70 people were dead and because because it had been a nonviolent protest it was all like you know grandmas and kids and people singing protest songs and like like it was all like none of them were armed and because it was so swift and so horrible it became this kind of transformative moment in like in the apartheid movement in South Africa. And and I picked it for the book because I sort of felt like the idea of like a little teeny tiny human thing, like throwing a rock that hits, you know, the metal of a roof and sounds like a gunshot, sort of kicking off this like massive global world shaking implications of this thing that happened was fascinating to me. And so, so the, so I, and I say this to say like, it isn't just that like, Oh, somebody threw a rock in my book and somebody and Murphy threw a rock. Like I didn't like invent rocks or throwing them, but like the idea <laughs> of like, you know, of like of a riot getting started because a rock is thrown and side a thinks it was side B that did it. And side B thinks it was side a that did it. And nobody sees Murphy sneak back off into the woods. I was like the, like, the use of the throwing of the rock as a plot device is identical. Yes. Well, and also and also on the even down to the level of in your book, and I not to spoil things too much, but in your book, down to the level of like nobody knows who did it or why in real life, but in your book it was someone choosing to do it in order to in make order the riot to make happen. that happen. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Like it was so like it was a person intentionally sowing that chaos. Yeah. Murphy throwing the rock deliberately to sow chaos is like lifted directly from the plot of your book. Like that is, it's yeah. not just sort of like, hey, it's like the Sharpeville Massacre, which is mentioned in your book. It's like, it's like the Sharpeville Massacre as depicted in the Rewind Files right. by Claire Right, right. This very specific, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I was watching it going like, yeah, like this is like, like, and it's gonna, yeah. like, like it's gonna make me crazy if I, like, wondering, <laughs> like, like, so like Miranda, if you, Miranda, if you listen to this, 
<laughs> so, like, yeah. If I you hear this, just like DM us and just say like yes or no. You yeah, know, just it's gonna, like it's gonna drive me <laughs> bonkers because yeah, because you're right. Because it's not people like lots of people know about the Stripal Massacre. Like I like it's a it's an extremely significant historical event. But the specific like motivation of the person throwing the rock, I was like. I've seen this before. <laughs> and I know, like, I, Jason has the book but hasn't read it. Kim Shumway has read the book, but she wasn't in the writer's room for that season. So it's like, so so if it was someone who, like, it's somebody else that I don't know about. And I'm just like, this is going to yeah, make me. Yeah, right. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> until specifically told otherwise, I'm going to choose to interpret that moment as a love letter to me. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> but also, but so speaking of of Murphy, Murphy had a peak Murphy episode this episode. Oh, yeah. Full of wonderful moments. Absolutely. Yes. This is this is Murphy in his element. Yeah. You know, Murphy yeah. being like, oh, yeah. So what you're, what you're saying you need is for someone to stir up some shit. Well, right. you've come to the right place. Like, at last, my skill set can really be used to its utmost extent. And how much did you <laughs> love, like, the visual of, like, you know, all all the sane people, right? Like, all the women sitting around on, like, on those cots trying to, like, carefully strategize a way to consider how to, like, sow some chaos. And Raven is like, we could, like, we could, like, I could, like, I could pick Shaw's brain and maybe, like, dig up some, like, right. intel. Right. Right. That we could use at some point <laughs> in the future to like maybe and then like she hasn't even finished the sentence where Murphy is like, Well, it's done. I've ruined everything. What's next? Like <laughs> and, and I was like, like, well, while they were still like, how are we gonna do this thing? And he just did it. Like he just went over and he said two words. And then a guy One punched sentence. a guy and he's like, Well, my work here is done. And I was like, this is amazing because truly. <laughs> like, like, given, you know, like, given the information that they had, and of course, we learned later at the end from Kane that it was like, that was potentially poorly thought out. But, but based on what they know <laughs> now, they really truly are facing a scenario for whom Murphy is the best person possible to solve this problem. And that happens uh -huh. so rarely. It must be really exciting for him because, like, he. <laughs> You know, both in that moment, like, of this sort of, like, the sowing the low-level chaos of, like, you know, getting the guy to punch the guy and causing a little distraction havoc inside the church, you know, is one piece of it. But also, like, on the one hand, I was furious at him for ratting out Abby to McCreary until I realized uh -huh. that that also was, like a calculated strategic chess move. Like the both, like the sort of juxtaposition of like, you know, like both Echo and Murphy are sort of known to be shady, but Echo has carved out a a place of, of partial trust with Dioza. And Murphy mm -hmm. has carved out a place of partial trust with McCreary. And, and so watching the two of them very, very carefully working in tandem to sort of stir shit up on both sides to get the result that they wanted, beautifully, again, capitalizing on everything that both we know about these people and what Dioza and McCreary know about these people and that trust having been earned because of them being honest about the ways that they're shady. You know, like it's Echo being like, I'm a fucking spy. 
I'm not going to pretend like I'm not. You already know that. You're not stupid. Like, let's, like, speak woman to woman here. And Dioza being like, all right, like, I can vibe with you. You know, and McCurry being like, I'm a shady motherfucker. You're a shady motherfucker. I feel a connection (laughs) to you. My brother. You know, um, like, I think think it's by not pretending to be, like, this is what I think, what I love about this episode for Murphy is that, like, Murphy accomplishes everything that he accomplishes, which up until the last like seven minutes, we think is exactly what we all want to happen. Um, He gets that point by being the purest, most undistilled, unfiltered version of himself doing all of the Murphy things that in other circumstances drive people crazy and make him unbearable and make him a huge liability to a team. And in this episode, he was just like, guys, I am the person. Finally, like my day has come. This yes, is my yes, moment. This yes. is like like <laughs> Shaw can't fix this problem. Echo can't fix this problem. I I am the one who can march up to McCreary and be like, "Hey, McCreary, guess what I know?" And McCreary will immediately <laughs> believe it. Like it, it's just it like it it worked perfectly. And it was delightful because I also was like every single time I was like, "Murphy, you motherfucker, Oh, wait. Oh, no, that's brilliant. No, keep doing that. Keep doing that. <laughs> exactly. Like, like I want I mean, to be like, mad. Yeah, that line that, like, this is my masterpiece yeah, is absolutely yeah. earned. Like, this so is... true. Yes. This is what he was born to yes. do. <laughs> yes. Yep, exactly. And I... So I... It was just... Like, it was so much fun to watch that escalate because every time I would just want to reach the TV and throttle him, then two seconds later, I'd realize, like, oh, no, he's, like... He's like Machiavelli. Like he's like yeah, yeah. He's seriously, gamed out this whole thing. He is the is he is the maestro of chaos. Like yes, none of yes. this, none of this is random. You yeah. know, like <laughs> he is conducting those motherfuckers like a symphony. Uh huh. Yep. And they are all doing exactly what he wants them to do. It's like it's it's amazing. And then so so to have that build and build and build and this escalating chaos and they and they get what they wanted and they create this like epic shitstorm of bloodshed and mayhem and then the best my favorite murphy moment of the whole episode slash my life was <laughs> so so the the moment when a grown up walks into the room and is like you guys are idiots. <laughs> like, this, this was a disaster. <laughs> when when Kane, like when Grumpy Dad shows back and he's like, I was gone for five minutes. What the fuck did you do? <laughs> I like, I had, I was, I made this joke on Twitter today. Like I had, I was watching that scene and I had this visual image of like, you know, Kane gets the, like the push notification of Code Blue from Dioza. And I'm just picturing him like, like back at the settlement, grumpily shoving his shit back into his backpack and going like, I haven't had a scene with John Murphy since season two, but somehow like in my bones, I know this is his fault. <laughs> but so, but so what I loved, what I loved in the moment, you know, when Kane turns back in and he's like, uh, Hey, dumbasses, I know you think you were helping, but you actually ruined everything. Then Murphy did the thing that I've been waiting for Murphy to do since the beginning of the season, which is like, do a thing for the greater good that has nothing to do with Amori. So like mm-hmm. he, like when he, when he says he's staying with Kane because, and Amori is like, what the fuck? Like this whole plan was to give us a distraction to sneak out. And he's like, it's Abby. I have to, which just melted my heart. But like, again, like remembering that connection, that relationship, 
he knows now that he that what he did to help them escape put Abby in danger. Mm-hmm. And so he stays behind to repair the damage that he caused himself. And not just like in in a way that's separate from Amori, but in a way that kind of places him almost like in opposition to Amori or to, or to what Amori wants for all of them, because she's like, we're going to just, we're going to bounce. And Murphy is like, no, I'm going to stay. And I, and that's, I feel like for, you know, for the kind of culmination of their relationship, for how she, what she had very accurately and very honestly kind of called him out for. And the little bits that we've learned over the course of the season about sort of what facilitated and what led to their breakup, you know, was him just really not being able to sort of muster the energy to give a shit about fully participating in the team, you know, like, like for, for his own reasons that he was sort of like, in order to like, in order to get by, I'm willing to kind of like go along with, all right, sure. Bellamy's in charge. I'll follow Bellamy. Okay, fine. But it's all to sort of like, it's always about been kind of like making life easier for him, you know, like making Mm -hmm. his own survival possible. And so the thing that I've been hoping, like the moment I've been hoping would come for Murphy would be something where we get to see him make a choice where he's he's completely unselfishly putting himself in danger, doing something that could have huge consequences to himself to help somebody to save the team for, for somebody else where he isn't sort of doing it performatively to win Imori back. And that's yes. what I think. Yeah, I, that's what I think they're teeing up with. You know, with him staying behind for you know for Abby, the the Kane Murphy pairing that I never knew that I wanted, and now I'm desperately hoping <laughs> continues the rest of the season. <laughs> but but that choice that he made because of his relationship with Abby, because he realizes that if something bad happens to her, it'll be because like it'll be his fault. It'll be because he stirred all of this shit up. You know, if they kill her, if or if you know if she dies in this chaos like that that's on him and he wants to stay and be the person to fix it because he realized what he did was wrong felt like actually like it like like a huge moment for him in terms of setting Mm -hmm. up maybe maybe what his journey of of redemption and kind of coming back into the fold will look like in the next couple episodes yeah exactly and i think that's a good example of kind of the same sort of dynamic working in an opposite direction where like Murphy and Amori and Murphy has been sort of like they're they're facing the tension over and over and over. They've been confronting the tension, and this is Murphy finally making a more positive choice. You know, exactly, so it's a culmination yeah. of what's been building. But like, whereas you know, in in the bunker, all that culmination is like bad. In this case, culmination is good, and it's so it's so Murphy that that like sort of final positive culmination of all these things comes about because he started a riot. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, well, this all checks out. Yeah, yeah. Like that all makes sense. You know, another way that another way that that kind of same pattern seems to be happening. You know, at a, at a macro level in um, in Shallow Valley is that like the sort of simmering tensions between the people loyal ultimately to McCreary versus the people loyal to Dioza also came to a head and exploded in like a super, super literal way, you know, like that was a kind of like, like Dioza's just barely been kind of keeping a a leash on McCreary, kind of keeping him happy enough to follow along. And he's been pulling and pulling and pulling and they've been sort of like pretend, you know, they've been sort of like keeping up the kind of appearances and we all, you know, and that was like unsustainable. And so this is the point where that, um, where that all kind of like pays off. But, uh, I would like to give just like a, um, take a moment for a special shout out 
to Dioza, A, for always being the motherfucking love of my life mm-hmm. and being and, – and playing 96-level chess when everybody else is playing checkers. <laughs> my, I love – I love – I love, love, love how much Echo – like, I love Echo's, like – boner for Dioz's planning <laughs> abilities. Like, I love that Echo's yeah. just like, this bitch knows what she's doing. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's and I, amazing. And I also love the continual sort of like, Echo's like, okay, I'll go, you know, I'll go tell Dioza, like, I'll go give Dioza the information so we can spark the other side of this thing. And I love Dioza being like, ah, well, okay, here we go. You know, and Echo being like, uh, wait, what? <laughs> you were re- you were ready. You were ready for. You planned mm-hmm. for this. Okay. Yeah. All right. It already okay. has a name. It's called Code Blue. Like <laughs> right. We've already done the drills for it. Like you're 15 steps behind. Like I right. love that. That's always true with with Dioza. And I love that that uh, that makes Echo just more like I love you. Yeah. <laughs> Echo's it like, where have you been bad. all my life? Yeah. He's like, I've been following dumbasses. <laughs> Seriously. Like, these women deserve each other. When she's, like, looking out the window and they're asking her, like, what is Dioza saying? And, you know, and Echo is like, she's telling them the truth, which I didn't think she would do. Like, like her her kind of, like, right. heart eyes of astonishment at, like, uh-huh. whoa, that is, like, that's the one thing that we didn't plan for was her just being like, Hey, yeah, thanks, thanks for, thanks for being my opening act, McCreary. So yeah, so we found a cure. Congratulations to me. Like the way that she just like flipped it on. When you're all, when you're all healthy, everybody gets a farm. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be awesome. You know, yeah. So like. And then McCreary looks like a crazy person, which is brilliant. Exactly. Exactly. And it would have worked if Murphy, if John Murphy Uh, hadn't thrown that fucking rock. Yep. Yep. (laughs) It also is really funny. So this is like, and I say this with the the deepest love in my heart for Bellamy Blake. You all know I love Bellamy Blake. I love him. But how much must it have killed Echo to be following <laughs> Bellamy Blake? <laughs> the worst maker of plans on a show of people who are uniformly terrible at making yeah. plans. When all along, <laughs> like, there was a milk goddess <laughs> named Charmaine Dioza who herself, see, this is the thing, and Dioza has had only idiots following her. Yes, exactly. She's never had exactly. a smart, right, like, she's never had an Echo, and Echo's exactly. never had a Dioza, and now yeah. I'm just like, if Dioza dies before this, like, bromance amazingness between these two women is fully realized, I'm gonna flip a table, because it's like, you've both been waiting for somebody like her your whole life. <laughs> uh, seriously! Like, like, the answer to both of your prayers is right in front exactly. of you. Exactly. Yes. Staring yes. at yeah. you from her perfect face. Exactly. Like, I'm ready just, to ship it. Yep. Just like ditch everyone else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Go start your own like like Slytherin colony. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, yeah. That was um, amazing. Oh, but Dioza, oh I mean, this was a next level episode for her. That fucking fight bottom. scene. That fight oh scene. my God. Oh, that fight scene okay. is my sexuality from now yes, on. Yes. Like, for wow. Real. For real. Like, like, holy shit. And and the the fact, I think, so the, I mean, I don't even want to say the best moment because every moment of it was amazing. But my, my some of my favorite moments in that whole incredible action sequence were, uh, one, her using I'm pregnant as a weapon to get uh-huh. the theory, to throw him off his balance so she could shank him in the neck with a piece of broken glass. <laughs> I was like, 
You are a stone cold motherfucker and I am here for it and I want you to live forever and like I want to like just like bow down and you like learn from your badassery. I was just like I'm in awe. That was incredible. And somebody tell Echo about that. She'll oh be God. by her no, side she, instantly. Echo, yeah, Echo would like Echo would have like a spy orgasm like it, like seriously. Like, that'd be like the sexiest thing she's ever heard. So that and then my other speaking of tiny badass women, the other moment that I loved was Abby leaping in front of Dioza without a second thought as soon as Dioza runs out of bullets because Abby knows that they will not shoot the doctor. And so yes. her being the baby's human shield, yes. I was like, again, like, my Abby is back. Yes. I have yes. more Abby thoughts that we can get to in a second after we finish raving about Dioza. But the, the way that, like, the show, letting a pregnant woman have this level of, like badass nuance and complexity and getting a battle scene like this like and I like and that wasn't incredible. just like a shootout battle scene and it no. wasn't a pretty battle scene that was a brutal yeah knockdown drag out hand-to-hand yeah. fucking fist fight yeah like yeah it was, there was ugly. nothing sort of gentle yeah it was yeah. ugly it was vis- it was like it was desert and she like i mean and she was like handling multiple people like the badass she is but like yeah that was that was like that was not a sort of, you know, like, balletic no. scene. No, that was, it like, It wasn't, dirty. like, a cool... It wasn't, like, a cool, sexy sword fight. You know, like, it wasn't... No, no. And the thing that I loved about it, too, was, like, again, like, what you were saying about this being the episode where everybody's chickens come home to roost, right? This is the episode where everybody mm-hmm. says the thing or does the thing. And again, as I mentioned before with Gaia and Indra and the way that we get all the backstory that we need just in how these characters interact now, even for all the years and stuff that we didn't see, we get the same thing with Dioza and McCreary. Like we, Mm -hmm. the whole history of their fucked up relationship with each other Mm -hmm. has been planted very carefully all, you know, from the beginning, we get these sort of little teases of like sort of this immediate kind of fracturing of that leadership trio, you know, and their trust is very conditional, you know, and then and then we learn, we get a little bit more hard information from Raven in this episode where where she tells us, you know, of the things that she's learned from Shaw was that McCreary was the leader first, which is new information. That, like, essentially, Dioz's ability to pull off the coup on board the ship is how she earned everybody's trust, but that prior to that, McCreary was the man on top. McCreary was the one that people followed, and he had Mm -hmm. his own kind of crew. So he's used to being, like, the alpha, the king. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, and then along comes Dioza with her infinitely superior strategic skills and ability to inspire people to follow her and, you know, and her background as a overthrower of totalitarian regimes, she earns, in a way that McCreary hasn't earned, she earns people's respect. She earns their loyalty. And, you know, and she has real relationships with them. Like, you know, the guy that gets cured, like, we saw in the previous episode her, like, genuine concern to make sure, like, is he taking care of himself? Is he going to be okay? You know, like, her her care for those people, you know, the ones that she knows and is close to is very real in a way that for McCreary, they're, you know, they're all kind of just weapons. So the backstory of kind of their you know, who's the leader, who's the second kind of dynamic spliced in with the fact that they were, you know, having bored, lonely asteroid hate sex with each other. (laughs) 
which is another factor in that complexity. Like they never liked each other. Like they were they were yeah. never like yeah. we're never being you know given anything to believe. Like this wasn't like a romance. You know they were just like it was like no. bored asteroid fucking. You know, like yeah, like we all do as <laughs> as we all do when we are trapped on an asteroid from time to time. We've all been there. You know, oh um, yeah, trapped so many in space times. with criminals. You know, but so the whole kind of evolution of their power struggle and all of this sort of the expedient like situational conditions that have created this incredibly fragile truce between the two of them for the like tiny slice of their lives in which they've had kind of a shared goal that they've sort of come to some kind of a tenuous handshake agreement to not murder each other (laughs) that has been fraying and fraying and fraying and fraying and fraying and fraying over the course of this whole season, you know, and then finally she realizes that she has this sort of neat, clean, easy out to just not ransom him back. And then all of her problems are solved, which Murphy ruins. And then deciding that she's going to just not tell him about the cure which Murphy ruins. (laughs) So she's taking every opportunity she can to sort of like quietly eliminate this problem. And then this is the moment where all of that, everything else gets stripped away. And it's just like these two people fueled by hate of each other and this violent opposition of their, you know, of their goals and what they want. Like the depth of McCreary's xenophobia that we see in his really Mm -hmm. chilling final moment about like Mm -hmm. exterminating one crew and everyone else like they're vermin his disgust at her for kind of taking in these vermin as pets and his sort of like you know naked grasping for power and chaos and the desire to be on top not for anyone else's good except for his own next to her being the person who sees the most clearly what an epic danger he is to everything that she's trying to build and how everything would be better if he would just die. Like they're just, it's so like, it's, it's such an extraordinary fight scene, not just because, you know, you're just like, like, again, like we've been saying the whole time, like not just because it's like a dope, well choreographed, bloody fight scene with, you know, a pregnant lady kicking ass and some broken glass stabbing. It's because it's rooted in their relationship and their history. And it unfolds for us all the dark shit of their relationship and their history through the way that they're fighting. Like, it's just incredible. Like the story being told in that fight scene, like there's plot being revealed to us. Yeah, there's plot and character. And I think also like, we know, we understand that they're fighting over more than just, like, there's more than just this moment in this fight. But I think we also understand completely, very fully and very deeply, because they've sort of developed it, like you were saying, so well over the course of the episodes. We understand that, like, what they're also fighting over is, they're fighting over what the world is going to be. And we yes. know, we know completely, we know what kind of world Dioza will build. And we know what kind of world McCreary will build. And so like this sort of this, we understand very viscerally what the stakes of that badass fight scene are on like a character and a relationship and an emotional and a plot and a kind of like huge, like sort of world scale you know what i mean and like on a sort of thematic scale like like this is a this is a symbolic fight it's about a vision of what the world can and should be 
You know, like that's the stakes of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and like and that feels really, really like and it's that like it's one of those things where it's like, I know that this is like I okay, I understand, like they sort of set this up, like I see that's like like that feels really, really real. Mm-hmm. Because I think and I think that comes down to because it's very because they've done the work to show that that's how it feels to the characters. Like mm-hmm. they feel like they're fighting over who gets to say what the world is, you know? Yeah. And so because we know that so, so deeply and so viscerally that that is true for the characters and that's what they're fighting over, that feels like what's, like, that is what's happening. Like, we feel those stakes, too. So, like, yeah, so, like, that fight, like, lands in, like, a whole bunch of ways that, like, cool fight scenes earlier didn't have the same depth, I think, because they didn't have quite the same sort of, like, thorough, like, they weren't so deeply the kind of payoff to a whole series of tensions that, genuinely reached a boiling point that could reach no other boiling point. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So uh, wrapping up, um, Abby, I would. I have one thing to say about Abby, and I'll turn it over to you. My one okay. thing to say is, what the fuck is going on with her hair? That's yeah. <laughs> Why does she look like she, like, fell asleep halfway through putting her hair into a braid? Because, like, one <laughs> half of it is up, one, one half of it isn't. You know- I mean, maybe she did. Like, she – maybe she – I don't know. Maybe it's an addiction thing, but I just like this. This episode, I finally looked at it and I was like, "Girl, what? What? What are you? What? What even is that hairstyle?" All right, now I'm done. You know, you know what is so funny? So she wore her hair like that at the Paris Con. That same kind of like oh, really braid that starts on one side and comes and loops around the other shoulder with like the loose tenderly pieces. It wasn't like so much of it wasn't hanging straight down like more of it was gathered in the but it's the exact same braid and so now i'm like was she like giving us like a secret hair spoiler the whole time um, <laughs> but Maybe um, she just really likes that look in which case i respect that yeah, page I mean, turco but i disagree yeah. <laughs> i think like if it was me i would like if i was in charge of her hair i would keep everything the same except take like leave the leave the sort of tenderly hanging down part of it like a little bit softer and pull more of it back into I was gonna say like not have literally half of her hair hanging down I would just walk up to her and say sweetie why do you keep why do you always hide your pretty face behind your hair (laughs) (laughs) you know you know what it is it's like they knew that the fandom was divided over her season one hair and her season two hair and they were like and they're like why not both great idea We'll make everyone happy. This plan has no downside. We will just make you know the what? left side of her head season one and the right it's, side of her head season two. It's symbolic of her divided mind and soul. There you go. There you go. Yes, I think so. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I agree. All right. Um, anyway, Abby Harrisside. Yes, over. <laughs> and her outfit continues to give me life, which I well, her, love. I have no complaints yeah. about that whatsoever. Yeah, the outfit is fantastic. One of the the things that she was sort of was joking about at the con in Paris that people were were saying that I thought was so funny was like I think in one of maybe it was like in one of her panels I think somebody said that she and Ian were joking together that like he was kind of like giving her shit when he saw what her new outfit looked like and he was like you're gonna like do surgery and like a leather jacket like what and she was like <laughs> I've been wearing the same like doctor outfit for four seasons like let me wear something new everybody else got new cool grounder clothes like I will I will do it in whatever like just like let me like have a different look let so, me live in <laughs> exactly yeah let her like let her have her leather corset god damn it man <laughs> but so I found that very amusing okay so Abby so the first thing that I want to say is that 
you know, for everybody who listened to our podcast on the last episode, where I had some real, real problems about how, how I mean, story was being framed in the narrative in terms of my concern about like, what are they trying to make us think and feel about who she is, about why she did this, about how she treated Raven, and having some real discomfort around the alignment of Abby being paralleled or compared in any kind of a way to, you know, Raven's abusive mother in terms of sort of what that kind of indicated. And then we talked about like it did really, really great character work for Raven. And I felt like it kind of did some disservices to Abby. And I think in this episode for me, turned that around completely in a bunch of different ways. So the first thing that I think that made me feel like, okay, I'm going to feel good about this episode is the fact that we didn't hearken back to the Raven torture in the previously. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the, the fact that she hurt Raven isn't the takeaway from that piece of the story. It's a mm-hmm. it's a terrible thing that happened, which helps explain part of why it isn't Raven who stays behind to save Abby. It's kind of how Raven is sort of like cutting her loose. Like Raven is willing mm-hmm. to leave her behind and run because Abby did something that kind of like cut the cord. And so for plot reasons, that makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. It also unpacked a lot of Raven's kind of like, you know, emotional mom trauma in ways that works really, really well. The takeaway from that was like, Abby solved the thing and Raven invented the machine and we have a cure that works. So we have, we now have a cure that works is the piece of that Raven and Abby story. That's what's going to play into the ongoing plot evolution and not Abby is junky asshole now or whatever. So that was the first thing where I was like, okay, so they're redirecting us back to what's important here. And what's important is the machine works. And it's already cured one guy. Mm-hmm. And then reminding us that Dioza and Abby make this kind of secret deal with the devil that Abby won't spill the beans. Mm-hmm. The second thing about it that I think works really well is that we take a little breather from the story being focused on Abby the addict in terms of that being the most significant piece of her plot. And this is an episode that is all about Abby, the badass, brilliant scientist doctor. And that the entire episode, like if you boil down the whole plot of what's happening in Shallow Valley, at its core, they are fighting a civil war over Abby Griffin, which frankly is like, this is what she deserves. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but her, like her importance is so monumental because of, because of her brain, like who she is, how she thinks, the things that she can do that nobody else can do. She is so significant that she is the one person that like Dioza will let anyone else hang, but she's like code blue is we go get the doctor and bolt. Mm-hmm. And McCreary, yep. the second he finds out what's happening, he like marches right over there and they don't hurt Abby. Like the reason that she can leap safely in front of Dioza and body block her pregnant belly is because she knows that she's the one person that like if she, like she says like if you know if I'd had the cure dies with me. And like there's plenty of other terrible things that McCreary can do to make people miserable, and I'm sure we'll get that in the next couple episodes. But but the fact is that, you know, this episode I think did a really great job of bridging you know, like she's in this situation because of her addiction. She has this deal of secrecy with Dioza as a condition to keep receiving pills. So it's there. Like it's still there in the background. Like it's still part of who she is. We haven't ignored it, you know, and it's also there in Raven's pain and hurt and frustration and kind of the recounting of the story and her frustration that Abby and Kane are helping these people that she thinks are terrible. But this episode was about 
the, you know, this is the Abbey that we remember. This is the Abbey that we've spent five seasons watching being the like brilliant badass doctor who can figure out things no one else can figure out. You know, this is the Abbey that mm-hmm. cracked Nightblood, you know, and that turned Lincoln back from a Reaper into a human being. Like, so she has these abilities at key moments in the story all along five seasons, you know, plots converge where Abby Griffin's medical brain is the thing that the plot hinges on. You know, like, now we have a truce Mm -hmm, with the grounders mm -hmm. because Abby figured out how to use the shock lash stick to basically restart Lincoln's heart and cure him. And this feels like another one of those kind of, like, watershed science genius moments. Now, where things have sort of flipped around is now she's McCreary's hostage. So... Now are we kind of inching up closer to the line of her being asked to do things that she doesn't want to do? You know, like with Dioza, I think there was an element of like, I don't like you. I don't necessarily trust you. We have a sort of very grudging kind of mutual dependence on each other. But you're a person that I recognize as being more of a compatible human being than with McCreary. Yeah. And and so the people that Dios is asking her to help versus the people that McCreary is asking her to help, she's going to feel really differently about that. So I think, yeah, I think recentering her as, you know, the hero and the savior of the storyline and and that she's the prize, she's the thing in the middle that both of these sides are fighting on because no one in the, the whole Allegius crew can survive, can have the future that they want unless they're the side that wins custody of Abby and Abby's brain and Abby's machine. So I think that's super important. And I think that that's also sort of foreshadowing where the confrontation might potentially end up coming next, especially as Clark and Maddie are now headed back to Shallow Valley. There, are, I'm of two minds about whether I think McCreary would strategically deprive her of pills to punish her and make her compliant or strategically keep her fed with pills so that her brain is sharper. I could sort of see him playing it both of those directions. So I'm excited about kind of what I think, what storyline is going to be like opened up for her next. But I, th- I think they did a really good job of recentering Abby as like a hero in this story, as a person who, you know, who has this knowledge. And I think just in terms of the kind of like the optics of putting her in a position where like, she's a person doing a terrible thing to a fan favorite character, which sort of immediately demonizes her and makes it, hard I think for people to see any kind of nuance in the choice that she made or why she did what she did you know like because Raven is so beloved I think one thing that I thought worked really deftly in this episode was having Murphy like being reminded that Murphy cares about her and that Murphy is willing Mm -hmm. to risk his life for Abby I think was a good like kind of counterbalance in terms of reminding us like all your faves will be dead without Abby Griffin like a million times over but also (laughs) that like that The story that's being told to us isn't that Abby's addiction has made her into a person who's inherently a villain or a bad person or an abusive person or a hateful person or a person who causes pain on purpose. It's a factor that is making it really difficult for her to be the Abby that she wants to be. And so in this episode, I think it was important that we took a break from that story and went back to you know, the thing that she's holding on to. So what I'm hoping happens, and I think we're teeing it up nicely for things to kind of converge with Clark when Clark returns, that I would love it if the thing that kind of flips the switch and pushes Abby into finally kicking the habit for good is a sort of realization and reminder of like, this is who she really is. 
the doctor who heals people and, you know, and has this mind and these abilities is her kind of core innate self. And I also really liked, you know, I, I, <laughs> I had to say, I kind of secretly love Vincent. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, I, I'm really enjoying him and his kind of lens on who Abby is and the situation that she's in. I think also helps kind of you know repair a little bit of that the stuff that I was a little bit in about last time. You know, I think him being her only ally, him intervening the way that he intervenes in like in that first really tense scene between Dioza and McCreary, where McCreary kind of senses somebody in this room isn't telling me something, you know, and not quite sure, but like, you know, is he going to figure it out? Is he going to, you know, is Abby in danger? Is McCreary going to sort of smell her at? And Vincent leveraging the fact that everybody is terrified of him to protect mm-hmm. Abby. And then at the end, you know, that little sort of like moment of eye contact where she's trying to pull away and he shakes his head like, you know, like play along for now. You know, I'm I'm really interested to kind of see how does that evolve, you know? And and Dio's is sort of warning to yeah. her about like, you know, you you pull the thorn out of a lion's paw, but he's still a lion, I think is pretty heavily foreshadowing like we're going to get to see Vincent at peak Vincent and it's going to be disgusting and terrible and awful. But I feel at this point like they're setting it up where if we do see Vincent kind of go serial killer ape shit, that it'll be in defense of and to protect Abby and not at Abby. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so, too. Yeah, like a sort of misguided thing. Okay, so I got to wrap up. But woo, we managed to squeeze it all in. Yes, and <laughs> and we don't have any more hiatuses. Hiatus. Hi- 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 yeah, hiatuses, yeah, hiatus. I think. Whatever. Yeah, so we will be back next week. <laughs> With episode five, is next week 510? 510. 510. Yes, The Warrior's Will, which is when the Ian directed, which is very exciting. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. Excellent. And we will find what The Warrior's Will what? Yes. Well, we we will find out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That was a terrible joke, and now I'm ashamed of myself, so it's time to go. Uh, (laughs) Uh, All right. Good night. We'll see you all next week. Bye.